like I know that the mob became successful and really blew up during prohibition. What I didn't realize was the mob really pushed the, hey, we don't deal with drugs. We don't deal with anybody that does deal with drugs. We're against drugs. And then you started showing that that's, that's just Hollywood. El Chapo, you know, it was Pablo Escobar, you know, El Chapo. But they don't see like a guy like Lucky Luciano as the predecessor to all this. And really he was, you know, he was like the first, you know, big heroin kingpin and, and nobody kind of views it as this in history because of all the Hollywood movies and stuff. So, you know, like people think this is recent, you know, all this, you know, racism and the drug war and stuff like this. It's not, you know, and, and it's even came out, you know, like they say Nixon was going after the blacks and the hippies. I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't start in 1970. It goes all the way back to the twenties. So why do we have some of these substances like, you know, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, even sugar? I mean, they're they're all basically, you know, like substances that, you know, can alter you in some way, you know, and it's, it's just like, oh, well, these ones are okay and we're going to regulate them and make money on them. But, you know, these ones are not okay, you know, because, you know, the, the Italians, the blacks, the Mexicans. You know, so it's, it's the whole system is, is, is so racist, you know, on its face, you know, like, oh, white people control these ones, so it's all good. You could make the analogy that the drug war and law enforcement, you know, propped up, you know, the, these rich people so they can make money and kill all of us and pollute the, pollute the world. So it's just, it's like, it's like the dark side of capitalism. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm here with Seth Ferrante. He is the writer-director of a new documentary that just came out called Dope Man, and we're going to be doing an interview and talking about the doc. Check it out. I, You know, I almost I was going to throw in there the um, um, white boy Rick, you know, but I, but I didn't know if you wanted, you know, I mean. Yeah, you, yeah, I don't care. I mean, that's my biggest credit, the white boy doc. I mean, it's still on Netflix right now. Right. Um. Yeah, I saw, I saw it, I don't know, I probably saw it like a, a month or so ago. I was flipping through, you know, I'll flip through docs uh, when I'm doing stuff. I, I watch, you know, I'll watch documentaries and stuff. I flipped it through and I saw it and I was like, hey. So, um, but I also saw that you came out, so you came out with this, uh, with uh, Dope Man. And what's the other doc? Don't you have another one that just came out? Because you had another one yeah, like it, or something, right? Yeah, we've been screening that, so that's not going to be probably be out till September. But we've been doing screening at events like we did Bicycle Day. We screened it at the Big Maps Psychedelic Conference in Denver, and I just screened it in uh, Grass Valley last weekend at uh, a big uh, psychedelic art gallery called the Chambers Project. Okay, because I, I I remember you you sent me I think you sent me the link to the trailer maybe. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. So really, I I got I got a bunch of things, you know. Um, the, the domain is not actually out yet. It's in the aggregator's hands. So, you know, nowadays it's, it's even hard to get a release date, you know, because the aggregator gets them. They just kind of put it in the line at Amazon and iTunes, you know, and then it'll go on like what they call FIVA first, a transactional video on demand, you know, where you like rent it or buy it from Amazon and iTunes. And then that's about a 60 day window. And then 60 days after it comes out on that, then it'll be what they call the AVOD, you know, the advertising video on demand, like, uh, you know, QB, Roku, stuff like that. You know, and the, the whole time, you know, we don't have a streaming deal yet, but, you know, a lot of times as, as an independent, 
you know, if you're not like in-house Netflix production or whatever, you actually, you know, you have to put it out and they want to see how it goes. And then if it goes good, then the streamers will come in and license it. Okay. I was going to say it, um, well, it's over an hour, right? And it wasn't, is it? Yeah. About 75 minutes, 75 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Because I just, it, you know, it starts off like it starts off at the very, oh, like I told you beforehand that we, my, my wife and I watched it the other night. You sent, you know, you sent me the link. So I was able to watch it, but I noticed that, you know, initially I was watching it and I was like, well, I kind of know this. I kind of know this. I kind of, but then I realized that as it, that it really just follows the, from the very, you know, the beginnings of drugs all the way through. Cause when I was initially, when I was watching it, I was thinking, I wonder why he did this. Cause I feel like I was, I was thinking like, I feel like I know some of this information, but I never really saw I never really fought, you know, you followed the evolution of, from every single point throughout whatever, what hundreds of, a uh, couple hundred. Years. Yeah. Like, no, it's, it's basically like a hundred years. So, you know, when, when prohibition was still going on in this country in, in the twenties, you know, the, the mobsters, that's, that's basically how the mobsters came up, you know, because before prohibition, yeah. the mobsters were just like street corner thugs, you know, extorting businesses in their neighborhoods and taking hits, beating people up, whatever. So as soon as Prohibition came and, and they started smuggling alcohol, that's when they started making real money, like money they had never seen before. That's when, you know, these big criminal organizations, you know, kind of came online because once you had the money, you know, then you could get the politicians, you know, then you could get, you know, the more businesses and it just really expanded, you know, what they were doing and made them, you know, almost into like these big uh, corporation type structures. So, you know, a lot of these guys were smart. And it's it's funny, too, because I, I think a lot of people know there were Jewish gangsters, there were Irish gangsters, there were Italian gangsters. But, you know, at, at first, they all kind of worked together, you know, and then it, it, it became, you know, as stuff went on. And like when Lucky Luciano took over the Italian mafia, you know, and formed the commission and all this, you know, famous historical stuff that we know, you know, he made it only Italian. And the Jewish guys kind of went into finance. And the Irish guys, you know, started going into government and, and police. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm not privy to the the conversations like these guys like Arnold Rothstein, Jake, Jack Lake, Simon, you know, uh, Lucky Luciano had. But, you know, to me, it seems, you know, that like they kind of planned all this. You know, they say, OK, Irish, you guys take the police politics, Jewish, you guys do the finance banks. We're going to keep the organized crime and you know they kind of they form these foundations and set in motion like all this stuff that, that made the mob you know a powerhouse you know probably up until like the 80s you know that the mob was like super powerful so i'm just kind of trying to set the foundation and and kind of show you know how everything got to where it was you know and at the yeah. same time they were smart enough to know that prohibition wasn't going to last so they started looking you know what can we replace you know, and that's how they kind of formed, you know, the first drug cartel. Well, you know, that that was like when it got to that point, in the documentary, I, you know, it's like what happens is as I was watching, I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't realize that. Like there's all these little things and you kind of start it starts tying in together. And when you were talking about the mob, like obviously, like I know that the mob became successful and really blew up during Prohibition. Like I think most people know that. But then what I didn't realize was 
the the drug angle because you even mention it in the documentary you talk about how like they really the mob really pushed the hey we don't deal with drugs we don't deal with anybody that does deal with drugs we're against drugs and then you started showing that that's that's just hollywood like listen this guy you know lucky luciano the this guy you know all these different mobsters all had drug arrests for drugs like if you don't deal with drugs and you and you are you know, pushing any type of drug activity out of the mob and you won't deal with it, then how come every single mobster had a drug drug arrest? And then you start explaining and explaining it. And so that was a part that I was like, oh, wow. Like I really had bought into the, they don't want to deal with anybody that has to do with, with drugs. And they certainly wouldn't deal with that. Like I really had bought into that till I watched the documentary. And I was like, wow. And you know, of course you show the arrest, like, Hey, here's the arrest. Here's the arrest. Here's Here's the mugshot for the arrest. Here's the, you know, so I was like, oh, wow, he, he looked into this. Like, this is, this looks really. Yeah, I see it. Like, like they, you know, it was, it was almost like a deflection for them because, you know, the, the guys at the top, it's not like they were handling fitness and stuff like that. They were just in envelopes of money, but you know, they knew where the money was coming. They were passing the orders, you know, down the line, but it, it was, it was really this kind of thing where, you know, like the, the head people, like the, the spokesman or whatever, you know, to the public, they would be like, we don't do this because they were trying to protect their money, you know, because obviously if you're making money in something illegal, I mean, our government does it all the time. You know, our government talks about, oh, we don't do this. We don't do this. You know, that's like the front, but right. they're doing it all, you know, because you want to hide it. If you've got something lucrative and that society frowns on, you know, so that's how this whole like man of honor, you know, with the, the godfather, you know, kind, kind of showed, you know, it, and that's what I'm trying to show. I'm, I'm like, it's a myth. These guys, you know, were in dope from day one. They were the first drug cartel. And if you look at history, you know, pe people know that you can say, okay, like El Chapo, you know, it was Pablo Escobar, you know, El Chapo, but they don't see like a guy like Lucky Luciano as the predecessor to all this. And really he was, you know, he was like the first, you know, big heroin kingpin and and nobody kind of views it as this in history because of all the Hollywood movies and stuff. So, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of, you know, that's what I do. I like to expose stuff, you know, like with white boy, we want to expose all the police corruption, you know, and help get white boy out, you know, so I, I'm just trying to expose stuff and kind of try to set the record straight. So I noticed, I didn't really notice this until the very end when I think you have it on the screen it, where it says, uh, it said like episode one. Is this a series? Because I mean, I yeah. Like so um, wrap you wrap it. Up. I feel I'm gonna do. Well, I, I'm gonna go more in because this this kind of for the for the mafia. This kind of covers are like the 20s to the 40s. You know, a lot of the stuff at the end, I'm just like foreshadowing. You know, like like what's to come. You know, I'm connecting it, but at the same time, you know, this is open ended. You know, I, I can go. You know, because in in like the 40s to kind of like the 60s, mid 60s, you know, they they had like the French connection, you know, which everybody has probably heard of the French connection, right? You know, the big mafia heroin connection, right? And then you know, from the 70s, that's when the pizza connection started. You know, like another, you know, that a lot of people have heard of. They made movies, so you know, I can kind of show the mafia story in dope. I I'm going to show it in in three episodes. This, you know, then then the part two which will kind of go the 40s, you know, the 60s, and then, you know, the pizza connection, like the 70s, you know, to the 80s. And there's just like, uh, 
I mean, there's just like all these mobsters, you know, you know, even, even somebody like, like John Gotti, you know, that were, uh, you know, they were getting money from it, you know, and, and everybody denies it. So I, I'm going to kind of show that line, but also at the same time, I'm, I'm leaving it open. So, you know, then episode four, then I can look at the Colombian cocaine cartels, you know, I can look, you know, at the African-American drug kingpins. I can look at the Mexican kingpins because it's just this thing is like all going it's been all going for 100 years it's just you know the names have changed the locations have changed you know the personalities or the ethnic groups have changed but i mean it's the same thing and my biggest point in this whole thing is you know people talk about like the drug war you know like drug war like you know nixon started the drug war in 71 and then you know reagan you know and bush amped it up in the late 80s but you know this goes back man this guy harry anslinger you know, who he was a failed prohibition agent. He formed the Bureau of Narcotics and he started chasing all these people. You know, they just had a big movie about Harry Anslinger, you know, chasing Billie Holiday, you know, the, the famous jazz singer, you know, right. the, the drug addict. Like this dude, Harry Anslinger, he was like super racist against Italians, super racist against African Americans. And I'm just trying to show, you know, like people think this is recent, you know, all this, you know, racism and the drug war and stuff like this. It's not, you know, and, and it's even came out, you know, like they say Nixon was going after the blacks and the hippies. I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't start in 1970. It goes all the way back to the 20s. So I'm, try, I'm trying to show, you know, this this parallel. You know, you got uh, 100 years of the good guys and 100 years of the bad guys. And it's just, it's still going on today. So it's like, when when is, when is it going to stop? You know, this is a war that, you know, nobody's going to win. So, you know, I, I did 21 years in federal prison for the drug war. So, you know, I kind of see what it is. You know, I didn't have, I wasn't have done 21 years in federal prison for, for the uh, crimes that I committed as a first time nonviolent offender selling cannabis and LSD. So, you know, I'm just trying to show, you know, let's, let's get the right history out there. Let's show the real reasons because everything that this dude, Harry Anslinger, you know, this dude like came up in, in, in Pennsylvania with like uh, kind of Quaker values. You know, he worked at the big railroads, you know, in, in you know, the, the early 20th century, you know, when they were the big corporation. So he got these corporate values. He got these, you know, kind of religious Quaker values and all the and he got like these, you know, racist, you know, racist values and stuff like this. So all this stuff that happened, you know, it was kind of like this dude's mindset. And and we're still we haven't evolved at all. Law enforcement hasn't evolved. The government hasn't evolved. Everybody is still like what this dude kind of said in motion. And this dude was, was, you know, he, he was the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, a predecessor to the GEA for like, like 50 years, you know, like this dude was still around like until like almost like the 60s, you know, I'm not even sure the exact date when he died, but this dude was around forever. And, you know, pe people don't, don't, uh, you know, put this on him, you know, they put it on Nixon, they put it on Reagan, they put it on Bush, but this is the dude that formed the whole template template for the for the war on drugs and it's been like this hundred year thing you know where where you know law enforcement is, is going after you know the uh so-called bad guys and you know obviously some of them are bad guys but you know when, when you bring racism and stuff into that you know they're just targeting groups of people because of the color of their skin or you know where they're from i was just thinking i interviewed a sheriff the other day and he said that 80 to 85% of the people that are in his jail are there for drugs. And he was like, he's like, and almost all of them, almost all, like 95% of them are users. 
So it's basically 80%, you locked up 80% of users or small-time drug dealers. And some of those are selling drugs. A lot, of the, a lot of those guys are selling drugs, but they're really just selling drugs to support their habit. Like if the drug was available, the drugs were available, you know, and, and inexpensive, then, you know what I mean? You wouldn't, there, there's no, there would be no reason, there'd be no reason for those, those jails to be fr- um, filled up. Or if you just had, you had free, um, if you took, Jesus, if you took a percentage of that money and you turned it into, um, you know, like free rehabs. Cause it's a hell of a lot cheaper to run a rehab than it is a jail. Yeah. So. Yeah. But that's just, you know, back, back, you know, back in the twenties, this guy, Harry Anslinger, you know, they kind of criminalized addiction, you know, but the, and the thing, the problem I got it with it too, is because they picked and choose, you know, like, so why do we have some of these substances like, you know, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, even sugar. I mean, they're, they're, they're all basically, you know, like substances that, you know, can alter you in some way, you know, and it's, it's just like, oh, well, these ones are okay and we're going to regulate them and make money on them. But, you know, these ones are not okay, you know, because, you know, the, the Italians, the blacks, the Mexicans, you know, so it's, it's the whole system is, is, is so racist, you know, on its face, you know, like, oh, white people control these ones, so it's all good, you know, and, and like I say, I, I look at some, I look at some, I mean, like, obviously, you know, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, you know, drugs like that, those are bad drugs. You know, I, I, I totally agree with that. And people, when they're addicted, they do all types of crazy stuff, you know, to get those drugs, you know, commit crimes. But you look at some stuff like cannabis, you know, like THC, to me, alcohol is way worse, you know, and, and you could even argue that, that, that like a caffeine or a nicotine you know, is, is on the same level, even sugar. I mean, cause if you think about it, you got somebody who smokes weed, yeah, they're just chilling out or whatever. You know, you got somebody just smoked a pack of cigarettes or just drink a bunch of coffee. You know, they're like all jittery, you know, drive around jittery and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, that's, I've always questioned that, you know, and you know, it has a lot to do, you know, I'm biased, you know, cause of my case and stuff. And I was punished a lot of time, you know, for marijuana and LSD, but I'm like, you know, why, why were the legal, these substances legal and these made legal? And when it comes down to it, it's all about money. The same thing, like, like you said, like law enforcement, why are we locking up drug addicts? Why have we criminalized addiction? Why are we not helping these people? And why have we been doing it a hundred years? We've been doing it a hundred years because it's been profitable. You know, it's, it's, it's allowed, you know, people in law enforcement, you know, to target different, you know, colors and, and communities and, just, just on its face, you know, I, I think it's morally wrong. So I'm trying to kind of show, you know, by telling the story of like these infamous and notorious gangsters, you know, I'm, I'm showing, I want to show all these underlying issues of, you know, why are we here where we are today? You know, why do we start this, you know, drug war again in the late 80s and lock up all people like me and just take decades of their lives, you know, for, for nonviolent offenses? You know, because we, we can all agree, violent people should be in prison. You know, you know, uh, people, you know, pedophiles, child molesters, you know, stuff like that. They should be in prison, you know, but just because you want to smoke a joint or, you know, or, or even if you want to shoot heroin, if that's what you want to do. I mean, you know, that's, that's your choice, you know, so, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not saying I would do it or I would condone it, but, you know, I, I just look at it, man, you know, from my own sentence, I had a lot of questions. And so this is kind of looking at the history, you know, but I'm just showing it 
from the frame of mind, like through these infamous and notorious gangsters, because I, I know that's what people like. They want to, they want to, you know, see what these guys are about and what they did. I'm just taking the story a little deeper because I think a lot of the stuff that's been done has been glamorized or romanticized, which just kind of showed the surface, you know. And even even like the government, I mean, why aren't these dudes like why is not Lucky Luciano considered like a herald kingpin? It's just you know it's 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 crazy to me, you know. So I look at it so. You know, I've just tried to expose it. Yeah, I'm trying to expose the truth, the real truth, so people can see. And it's just layers, you know what I'm saying? You got what's on the surface, but it's just layers and layers and layers and layers of stuff. And then when you tie it all together, you can be like, okay, I can see it now. So that's what, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. But, you know, at the same time, you know, the viewer has to make their own decision. I'm, I'm just putting the information out there. You know, they, they can form their own opinion. They don't have to have my opinion. So, okay, so you don't know when this will be really available. It'll be six months or? No, no, it's going to be in the next month. Oh, in the next month. So, so when I give you the aggregator, uh, it's going to be like on like on Amazon and iTunes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so so I get to the aggregator, so they tell me like one to four weeks. You know, because every, everything's like digital now. So, you know, um, you know, I'm not like my studio and, and my name is not big enough where Amazon's going to give me like a set release date. They just like put me in a line with all the other stuff that, that has been submitted. Right. You know, through act through aggregators, which an aggregator is basically like a digital distributor, you know, cause everything is digital out. Everything is streaming, you know, the old model for films, you know, where you make a film, you get a advance for North American rights. You maybe go to theaters and then you, you know, they sell the rights. I mean, that, that model is pretty much dead. You know, that now every, everything, it's all kind of, you know, online, streaming, you know, on demand. You know, most people are, are watching stuff now, like on, on their laptop. So, you know, so, um, and, and like I say, I'm, you know, I've only been out of prison eight years. So, you know, I, and I've been doing this film stuff, you know, or try to get into it. So I'm learning as I go, you know, like my, my previous experience to this, you know, was White Boy, which I, I did with Sean Reck and Transition Studios. And um, I, I learned a lot on that, but you know, it's still, it's, it's like just this whole uh, film industry is like, like, it's like ever evolving. Like, you know, how, how do you, how do you get this to the people? You know, how are the people going to access this? How are they going to know about it? You know, so it's, it's, it's like something you, you kind of got learned as you go because it's changing so much, you know, like in the film industry they used to have, they would have, you know, like distributors, sales agents, you know, studios, but now they got these, you know, businesses that now they're like, they're like studios, sales agents, and distributors. You know, so it, it, it's weird how, how stuff stuff is going. And as a, a, you know, and like I say, I'm not Netflix. I'm just the independent, you know, outlaw films. That's my studio. So we're, we're kind of doing this, you know, by, uh, you know, grassroots work, you know, word of mouth you know, to, to kind of get this out here and, um, let people see. But, you know, the one thing I can say, you know, I, I learned how to make a documentary from Sean Reck on white boy, uh, Sean Reck before he did that, he had done 200 crime stopper shows for all the networks. And he had won nine Emmys, nine regional Emmys in Ohio. And he kind of mentored me all this. So, you know, he, he stressed like the, the high production value. Cause I, I think you could see you know, something on Netflix, you can really differentiate, differentiate in the production value between something on Netflix and something on YouTube. You know, so what I'm trying to do with Dopeman and everything else I'm doing, I'm trying to keep my production value 
you know, as, as, as high as possible, you know, obviously with, within the budget that I have, but I, I want my stuff to look, you know, like Netflix, you know, as opposed to YouTube. And I'm not knocking on YouTube. I, I know people that make a lot of money off YouTube. You know, I just right. want my stuff. I just want my stuff to look, you know, a lot nicer, you know, so I shoot with better cameras, you know, we shoot different angles, we light, you know, all, all the things, you know, that they do in Hollywood. Right. What, so, you're, basically, you're hoping, you're hoping that, you know, it, they do well, they get picked up by a larger streaming network, and then you end up producing more and more of this, this series, right? A limited series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and um, like I'm saying, this is just one of my things because, you know, I, I got the dope, man, but I also got uh, Nightlife is about to come out, which is a, a nice little film, um, real beautiful film ab about the problems in North St. Louis, you know, with like drug addiction and violence. It's about a group of violence interrupters called Nightlife that walk around at night. And then um, I got my LSD series, which I got the first episode done, which we've been screening around. Uh, I also got a cannabis series, you know, about the Emerald Triangle called Tangled Roots. So um, I, I got a, I got a bunch of stuff, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to brand outlaw films. It's, it's kind of, you know, it, it's like true crime, but it's more like, you know, counterculture drugs, like that part of what they would call true crime, as opposed to just like, you know, murder mysteries and, and, and whatnot. Right. How do you, I don't know if you want to get into this, but I mean, how do you like, you didn't walk out of prison with you know several million dollars and a budget to do all this. Like, how are you raising the money to go about producing these, you know, the various uh, documentaries? Yeah. So when, when I first started, you know, um, I first started working on white boy, probably like two years after I was prison. So we're talking like maybe like 2017. And, um, you know, I saw how Sean Reck was kind of doing stuff, you know, but he, he had a big name. He won Emmy. So it was kind of easier, you know, people wanted to give him money you know, because he had a reputation. So me, I had a reputation as a writer, you know, but I, I didn't have a reputation as a filmmaker. So at first I was struggling, like nobody wanted to give me any money. I had all these ideas. Nobody would invest anything, you know, and this was probably like, you know, from 2017 until, uh, you know, the end of the pandemic. So, you know, we're, we're talking like, you know, three, four years, like I'm basically like struggling you know, funding little projects cheap by myself with uh, money I got from my books and journalism. But then, um, you know, something extremely fortunate happened, you know, for my career, White Boy, uh, it blew up on Netflix at the end of the pandemic. It was like top 10, not top 10 documentary, top 10 on the whole Netflix for like two weeks. You know, it had like, uh, I don't know the exact number because Netflix doesn't give out numbers, but I've heard people say, you know, like it had like 20 million views in, in like the first couple months, you know, it was, it was on Netflix and once, and I wrote and produced that. So, you know, it wasn't my studio. I didn't direct it, but I learned, I was mentored by the guy whose studio was and the guy who directed it. And he kind of took me under his wings and I worked with him hand on hand. And it was based, that whole thing was based on my writing. It was based on my work, all the stuff I wrote about White Boy Rick previously for like Vice News and all these other places about the injustice of his case. So um, that kind of put a spotlight on me, you know, and that kind of brought some attention. And even some of the people that I had talked to about money before, you know, they kind of came back to me, you know, because for me, White, White Boy was awesome because, uh, you know, I mean, it's nice. Like when you can go, 
I can go like, and sometimes I'll be in a restaurant or a store or something. And, and, you know, I can mention white boy or I can hear other people talking about it. And, you know, people know that film. They might not necessarily know Seth Ferrante as a writer director, but they know that film. So then I can volunteer that information. Oh, well, I wrote and directed that, or I wrote and produced that, you know, and then, uh, you know what I'm saying? So then it's, 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 it's cool, man. When, when you, especially create as a creator, a content creator, when, when people like recognize your stuff and, and you have something that a lot of people have seen. So, you know, once I got to that level, you know, then it, it was kind of easier. You know, like people would actually listen to me. They would actually check out. I, I kind of equate that to um, like, you know, when the new England Patriots win the Super Bowl, everybody knows Tom Brady's a man. But all those people on the team, you know, like in free agency and stuff, they get the big contracts because they were part of that winning culture. You right. know, so people, once you prove that you're part of something, you know, because our, our country, I mean, our country is obsessed with winning. Everybody loves a winner in this country. You know, everybody loves something that's popular. You know, you know, there could be something that's just as good somewhere, but, you know, nobody knows about it, so nobody cares. So, you know, once I was a part of that winning production, it just gave me you know, a lot more uh, value and a lot more credit to people that want to invest in this type of stuff. And, um, yeah, that's how I did it. You know, I went back, you know, some of the guys came back to me, you know, they had friends and, uh, but I, I'll, I'll say true. Most of my investors are, um, they come, they come from the cannabis world, you know? And, uh, I don't know the cannabis industry. I, I don't know how hot it is right now because it seems like everybody's trying to do it, but you know, like, Three, four years ago, it seemed like the cannabis people, you know, had more money, you know, and, and luckily they threw some of it my way. Okay. And I mean, once you get, so once you get, you know, somebody that, you know, per, uh, you know, puts up the money and then they, of course, you know, they get their money back in a percentage or whatever it is. Do they typically come back again and say, Hey, what else are we, do what else do you want to do? Yeah, I've got, I've got several of my investors. They already told me. You know, when when I pay them back, you know that they want to invest in more stuff. You know, they're just winning. Right. But but I see, I'm I'm kind of at the uh, basically like when White Boy came out, I, I got about three years of funding for my studio. You know, this is the third year, so I, I'm like at the end, and it's took longer to get some of this stuff out. You know, it, it's been a struggle. You know, I, I've learned as I, I I've kind of learned as I went along. You know, I, I sometimes you know. In life as a uh, employer, you make you know bad decisions on who you hire. So you know, I, I've I've kind of gone through that, you know. But I, I got a good crew right now. You know, I, I don't have a lot of I got five guys, you know, like like editors and shooters that work for me. So, um, like I say, between now and Christmas, I got five. I got five projects dropping. You know, first is Dope Men in the Nightlife, and then uh, which Dope Men is a kind of open ended limited series. Um, you know, nightlife is a standalone doc. You know, the LSD is is a, a series, a limited series. The Tangled Roots is a limited series, and I got this other standalone doc called Tortured Mind, which is about um, you know how prison, how people leave prison, like with with PTSD, and now they're actually calling it post incarceration syndrome. You know, they're calling it PICS. You know, a form of PTSD. So I got this other film called The Tortured Mind that kind of looks at that and uh, it looks like, like, why aren't these people, you know, being helped? Like, you know, why, you know, you go into prison with an addiction or, or maybe some type of mental issues and then, you know, they're 
thrown through the meat grinder, you know, witnessed violence or, you know, whatever, victims of violence. And then these people come out and then they're, they're stuck, man. Their, their mental illness is exacerbated. Their uh, addictions are like running rampant. And, and you know, the, the prison system just throws them back out on the street. I mean, you know, like, what do you call out? They give you like a bus ticket and $200, you know, like, like it's, it's crazy, you know? So, so like people are coming out and yeah, maybe they had some addiction with some mental issue before, but you know, going through the prison, the, the PTSD, the post-incarceration syndrome, it just, you know, it amplifies it. And so I, I, in a tortured mind, I studied the case of this one guy who was a friend of mine named Ryan Leone. And I mean, he's dead now, bro. He's dead because he witnessed a lot of violence. You know, he couldn't control his addiction. You know, his mental illness got worse and, and no one helped him, dude. They just threw him back out to the world. And, you know, he, he, he was a federal prison. He was in a state prison, you know, and, and, and then he eventually, he, he, he overdosed, man. He died. So it kind of follows, you know, his story as the prime example of, uh, you know, we need to change, man. We need to do something different. So I, th I think that's what a lot of my work, you know, I'm trying to entertain people and, and show people cool stuff and, and cool stories that, that I can get access to that a lot of other people can't. But at the same time, you know, I, I want to show like, you know, you know, everything I've done so far, even, even like, like my writing, rich things and stuff like saying, you know, how can we make it better? What can we do? You know, you know, like, like the white boy, like, you know, why, why, why did white boy Rick have to do 32 years in prison for eight kilos of cocaine? You know what I'm saying? So I, I just like to look at these different things. Cause if not, you know, the mainstream media is just going to bury all this stuff under the rug because, you know, nobody cares unless you can present it to them, you know, in an entertaining way. And then, you know, you can like when we deal with the white boy story, we eventually help get them out because there was so much public outrage after watching the doc that, you know, people were basically demanding, like, why is this guy still in prison? You know, so I'm, I'm trying to do that with, with all my films, you know, and especially Dotland. Like, you know, why have we been fighting this 100-year war? Why has law enforcement, you know, basically, you know, been seizing stuff? You know, because law enforcement is crazy because, you know, I'm based, I'm based in Missouri in St. Charles County, and the police have this big monster truck, bro, that they, like, drive around when they do, like, rallies or why do the police have a monster truck that's they seized it from a drug dealer from or the money from forfeiture they're using money so you know it, it just doesn't make sense to me that law enforcement you know they have an incentive to bust drug dealers it's called forfeiture you know like you just said so it's just like why are we incentivizing law enforcement to go after drug dealers? it just doesn't make sense and it's been going on so long because you know, like, I, i'm just like Sorry, I, I wrote a book um, called uh, Generation Oxy. And in the end, at the end of the book, when the kid gets arrested, his name's Doug Dodd. He got arrested. He was sitting in the back of, he said like, I forget, it was some kind of SUV. He goes, it was really a nice SUV. He goes, and he said, man, it's a nice SUV. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I pulled it off a drug dealer, uh, you know, last month. He goes, I'll be driving your car next week. And yeah, he was just like, you know, he said, I, I was, you know, like, and then, and then when you even, yeah, when you even look at, uh, at like the D D D E A and stuff, there's been so many stories of like rogue D E A, so many stories of like women D E A going in, you know, dating these drug dealers, you know, having sex with them, even getting pregnant 
to bust them. I mean, what this is crazy, bro. This is like this was like high crap. I think this is worse than some dude selling crack on the street. But why is that okay? Right. Why is that okay? And but selling crack on the street is not so. Well, I, I you know I was gonna say I have another buddy that got busted in in um, Hawaii. He got busted. Of course, you know they take all your stuff, and he went to jail. So he went to jail, and he had like a like a thirty thousand dollar Rolex. And he said, you know, they took my stuff. He said, well, they already had I think an attorney on retainer. So he and his brother get arrested. They go to jail. He said, like the net, like that day or the next day, he got bonded out. He said, and the bond was outrageous. You know, it's like a, a million dollars. He said, well, we had it. You know, so he said, like his parents or somebody actually was already ready to put up the bond. So he got bonded out. He said, when I went to go get my uh, all my stuff, he said my world my Rolex wasn't there. So he's like, no, nah, where's my Rolex? He said, I had the receipt showed the Rolex. So I start saying, hey, you guys owe me $30,000. So he starts arguing and bitching. They, I want to say it was the, I want to say it was DEA. They had to call three or four different people. And eventually he said like two hours later, the DEA agent that, one of the, one of the agents that busted him walked in the front door and threw a, the Rolex on, on the counter and said, here, bro, I wasn't stealing your Rolex. Uh, we were just using it, you know, for some bling for, for another bust. He's like, you just pulled it out of my property thinking I wasn't going to get bond. He's because they were all telling him, you're never getting out. You're doing 20 years. And that's what they believed. And they believed you're getting 20 years. We'll be selling this stuff. So he just removed it and went, drove home. They, they had to call the guy at home. He wasn't on a bus. He was at a home. He had to get in his car and drive down there and give him his watch back. So I mean, that's, you know, like there are so many stories like that. And what happens to that cop? Nothing, nothing, nothing. No, it's, it's, it's like the same thing. So look, you know, I like I'm a cannabis psychedelic dude, so you know I I believe you know like when I was 13, you know like like I believed in cannabis and and I thought cannabis was you know medical, spiritual, therapeutical, and the same with like psychedelics. You know, I I, I thought you know that it was very spiritual. It was like mind expanding, made you see stuff the different way. You know, so but you know with the drug war and in my 25 year sentence, you know, oh I'm wrong. I'm a drug addict. I'm a criminal. You know, I, I never consider myself a criminal, though. You know, I consider myself an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. And now, lo and behold, 30-something years later, cannabis is legal. You know, is is on its way to, uh, you know, federal legality, you know, eventually. But it is legal in a bunch of states. And now psychedelics are being looked at, again, for their therapeutic value. Because if you look at it, the same thing with this kind of 100-year thing with law enforcement, you know, and, and drug dealers. So there's, there's another thing, too, which I touch on in dopamine a little bit. All right. The pharmaceutical companies, they came online in the 20s, bro. You know, all the pharmaceutical, there was no pharmaceutical stuff. Before, you know, people people had smoked weed or weed treated like 60 different symptoms for thousands of years. You know, and, you know, like the, the herbalist or whatever, you know, the, 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 you know, doctor or healer or whatever that's what they would prescribe or even other psychedelics you know like like peyote mescaline stuff like that right so when these big these big pharmaceutical companies came online as a direct result of like the industrials you know because a lot of people made a lot of money like all the big names the rockefellers all those names you know they like the industrial age the robber barons they made all this money but then in the early 1900s 
they got shot down because they were exploiting people. You know, people were getting their arms chopped off and they, they weren't getting any type of compensation. You know, child labor, long hours, and they were just using these people as human chattel. And when it, that got exposed, you know, they already had all this money, but they had to look for something different to continue making their money because they couldn't make it. So they went in to pharmaceuticals and they went into plastics, right? So the way I see it, and, and I kind of made this illusion in, in Dopeman, you know, law enforcement basically was going after the competitors to these new pharmaceutical and plastic industries. And now look, a hundred years later, we got fentanyl everywhere. People dying from fentanyl every day, right? Our oceans are full of plastic. So, you know, you could, you could make the analogy that the drug war and law enforcement, you know, propped up, you know, the, these rich people so they can make money and kill all of us and pollute the, pollute the world. So it's just, it's like, it's like the dark side of capitalism, you know? And like I say, I'm American. I like capitalism. This is probably one of the only countries where you can have nothing and, and you can come up and make a lot of money. There's not any other country like that besides there, here. That's why everybody comes here, right? But at the same time, the last hundred years, we've had this dark side of capitalism that has just kind of been, you know, running everything, running law enforcement, running politics, you know, and, and I'm trying to show, I'm trying to show this whole story. Like, how did we get there? Because a lot of people think, oh, the government said it or, or they're right. But, you know, look, look, like we even look today, you know, um, I'm not a Biden fan. I'm not a Biden fan at all. He's a, he was the orchestrator, one of the orchestrators of the war of drugs. He's one of the reasons I did 21 years for the first time about a violent offense. And now all this stuff is coming out about Biden, how he is allegedly made, I don't know, I heard 30 million, 50 million through peddling influences. But, oh, it's okay because he's a politician. But, you know, if I want to make money selling you know, substances that I think are spiritual and therapeutic, I got to go to prison for 25 years. So, you know, it's just, it's just all this different stuff where if you look at these stories from different perspectives through different lenses and, and, and different people, you know, like the mafia and, and stuff like that, you know, that's, that's the picture I'm trying to paint, you know, cause the good guys, most of the time, the good guys aren't the good guys. And I'm not saying Lucky Luciano was a good guy, you know, by any, you know, he was a mobster, he was a gangster, but you know, it's, it's, it's like you said about those DEA agents, right? Like they, they got, they can do whatever they want and get away with it. But me or you or the regular citizen, we're going to be punished for, uh, if they bust us with a $5 crack rock, they're, we're getting punished or going to jail or a bag of marijuana or a joint. They find a joint, they're going to seize our car, you know, but, but Biden and, and all these other government people, law enforcement people, they can just, they can do whatever they want because. Oh, they are on the side of right. It's just, you know, it's, it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. I kind of been fighting this battle my whole life, you know, since, since I was 13 and, and I first got into the counterculture. So, you know, it's the same thing, like, like the hippies, like the counterculture, what did they do? The hippies came out, you know, they didn't want war, you know, they wanted to change stuff in the sixties and what happened? They got crushed by the government. Right. So, you know, I, I don't know, maybe we're in a different climate now, you know, um, you know, like, I don't think, I'm not sure, like, the government is going to come after me. I mean, I make sales. I, I don't do anything. You know, I like to smoke a joint every now and then, take a, a hit of acid, but, you know, it's not like I'm a distributor or whatever. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, things in that regard have kind of loosened up a bit, but still, man, it's just, it's a vicious, cut-through world, and it's all about money. So there's been, like, this 100-year war 
on substances that they determine are not good for us because we have all these other substances that are good for us. And, and people have just been persecuted. They've had their lives taken. You know, they've had their lively, you know, like look, look at the cannabis farmers. You know, these cannabis farmers sacrifice all the, for 50 years, sacrifice, you know, their, their life, their livelihood, went to prison, you know, had a uh, military, you know, helicopters flying over their land, little stuff. And none of this made them stop growing weed because, you know, they, that's what they believed in because they were outlawed, you know. But now it went legal and now all these farmers are, you know, they can't compete, you know, because you can't, you know, if you're a little guy, if you're a mom and pop, you can't compete with a Walmart. It's it's impossible. So I, I, I just try to show, you know, uh, a, a lot of, you know, I, like I say, I, I love this country, but, and I love capitalism, but I don't love, right now I feel like we're, the last hundred years we've been in this age of dark capitalism. And hopefully, you know, in the future, you know, the next 50 or 100 years, that's how this last hundred years will be remembered. You know, and I, I hope we're about to break out of it. You know, I mean, you never know, but, you know, but they're, they're trying, you know, to keep a hold and, and it seems like keep a lid on it and stuff like that. But, you know, and, and, and like I say, you know, like when we were growing up, like a lot of this stuff, we knew about this stuff, but it was like conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, because anything that's true that the government doesn't like or the media, because they control the media, they control everything, bro. You know, well, all the it, all the conspiracy theories that were out there when I was a kid are are now coming true. Yeah, like now, like I mean, that wasn't a conspiracy theory. That was it was true. Theory that's true. They, 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 so that's they, why they're doing they're doing you know hearings in Congress on aliens or on UFOs. Like come on, like what do you ha, like the listen in the eighties when I was growing up, the idea that Congress would even consider having a hearing is ludicrous they would never have done that like and now they're having these open hearings and showing films and you're going what is going on they're, they've yeah. they've got a whole department now focusing on this like this is insane yeah because because our government and and you know the 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 people that fund them the 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 elite corporations you know that fund them you know, that they wanted to keep a lid on everything so they can control everything, you know, control information. So, you know, and, and like I say, we talk, we always talk about like the Nazis or like Stalin and all these other, you know, like, you know, dictators or bad people in history and like what they did. We've been doing the same thing here the whole time. You know, it's, it's, it's just been disguised and, and swept under the rug and, you know, People make movies, you know, about this. We have a better marketing campaign. We have a better marketing campaign. The home, home of the, you know, home of the free, you know, land of the brave. You know, we we got a way better marketing campaign than than the Soviets did, and that's yeah, yeah. you know, a, a lot of that. Not all of it, but a lot of that. It boils down to you, you know, really pushed the correct, you know, the U.S. pushed the correct agenda that really does um play to the masses you know so the idea it's great to say hey if you come join our our crowd we'll feed you we'll give you bread and water and you know free medical but in the end you can't and when you can't provide that and you got the the americans are saying look our system the idea of capitalism is a little bit more brutal it doesn't sound as as good as communism like the concept of communism is wonderful we're all going to work together we're all going to um live off of the fruits of 
everyone's labor and it's all going to be fair. That's great. It doesn't work. Capitalism says, you know, really almost the opposite. If you work hard, bust your ass, you can make money. And if you don't, you'll fail. And that's a brutal concept. But the truth is that's what works. And so when you say, hey, the, the peace and love and we're all going to work together, when you start seeing that fail and you realize that the harsher version is what works, and you've got a great marketing campaign, winning, winning, winning. It's all about winning, money, making tons of money, working hard and winning. And you see that over and over again. You start to say, hey, this is the way to go. And people flock to the United States and they work hard and they try and, you know, like you said, but behind the scenes, most of these, go- or our governments are doing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. No, totally. And it's, it's the same thing. Because remember the 80s when we were growing up, they used to say 10% of the population had all the money, you know? So right. what do they say now? 1%. Yeah. So exactly. I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you, you got these people at the top, like they got so much money, it's ridiculous. And you got the people at the bottom that have to live like two, three families in a house, you know, can barely afford one car working minimum wage job, you know, just to make it. So, you the, know, the middle class in this country has shrunk by half in the last 30 years. It's a dramatic shrinking. And that was what made America great. We had this, we had this massive middle class. We just don't, it just doesn't really exist. Now you have the haves and the haves not. Yeah. I just think the whole, that whole kind of, uh, you know, fifties mentality, you know, like the, the white picket fence, you know, go work for somebody else for, for 20 years, you know, get married and, and have kids. Like that's what was pushed, you know, like, like through religion and, and government and, and stuff like that. I just, I just think a, a lot of people now are kind of seeing it, you know, because ever since the 80s, you know, there, there's been more, you know, kids born out of wedlock, you know, there's been more divorce, you know, that kind of old model ha- has kind of, uh, you know, gone away. But still, you know, that, that it's, I saw another statistic the other day that, that I thought was kind of crazy. Like it was talking about the age of, of politicians, you know, and they say right now, this is, we, 25% of our politicians are age 70 or older. Like, that is crazy, bro. Like, what are they like? You know, like, you look at something, like, you know, like Biden and some of these other people, like, what are you still doing? Why are you able to make the decisions? You know, it's you're out of touch. Even if you said, hey, mentally, even if you said mentally they were able to, um, to, you know, they were, they were mentally stable. um, You're still out of touch. Like that, that's the big thing about, about, you know, the constitution is that it grew as the culture as our culture, you know, our, our civilization and country changes, the constitution can change. And that's why it's one of the oldest doc. It, it, I think it is the oldest um, document uh, government that's running, even though we're a new country, it's the oldest government that's still in existence from the original, from the original constitution because it, it evolves and it grows. But the problem is the people that are putting these policies into effect and our, and, and our, um, um, you know, you know, well, I guess, you know, passing new laws and, and uh, looking at the new laws, you know, they, they're out of a lot of them, like you said, at least 25% of them are out of touch. Like a 75 year old guy cannot relate with a 25 year old, you know, he, he's not, you're telling me, you know, just like you said, with the cannabis, probably, well, one, it probably never should have been um, illegal, but two, 25 years ago. And here's the, the big thing is, listen, as of 50 years ago, you knew that the war on drugs wasn't working. 
You knew this is a failed policy. It's been failing for 50 years. And all you've done is bloat the police and the prison system and the court system. And you've spent trillions, not even billions, probably trillions of dollars put locking people up and throwing away the key when you could have been taking that same money and you could have been educating those people and treating addiction. You could have spent a third of the money they've spent and given free education and free addiction counseling to get rid to to limit those. You know, but it's a, like you said, it's about control. I think it's about control and I think it's about getting votes. It sounds great to say I'm tough on crime. That's a great concept. And it is great. It's just not working. And all these politicians are basically funded by, you know, uh, people, you know, corporations or people or organizations with, you know, they have, they have agendas. Right. You know, and they lobby, you know, that's, they, you know, a politician. I, and I'm not going to blame anybody. People, you know, this is in the country. People can go where the money's at. But, you know, I mean, it's just been going on so long. You know, like my whole lifetime, I'm 62. I'm just like, you know, you know, what what, what can I do? You know, I, I already went to prison. I, you know, behind the lines. And I think being in prison too really makes you see anything because you know what they do in prison they divide and conquer they pit the races against each other you know because there's like a thousand dudes in a prison and there's only like 20 guards so how else are you going to make control you got to keep the a scarcity of resources you know so the people in prisons are fighting over the resources that's how you make control and before i went to prison i didn't see it like that in the world but once you go to prison you see how they do to there you come back out here and you can be like they do the same thing it's just like on a uh a much larger scale and they, they use the media propaganda and everything. So, you know, I, like, you know, back to dope, man, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show like, you know, paint these like broad strokes, you know, with, with stuff that people like, you know, cause people love mob stuff. Right. So I'm kind of, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm telling the, the surface story, but I got these broad strokes underneath that I, I'm trying to get people so people can realize, you know, just like we did with White Boy, you know, White Boy, we never said, you know, in White Boy that these people were prepped or this one. We just showed what they did, you know, and showed what happened, you know, as juxtaposed, you know, what happened to Rick, you know. So we we kind of try to show, you know, like like why is this stuff happening? And then people can make their own decision. Right. I was gonna say through through entertainment, I think you you learn a lot. I I there was a movie called. Um, uh, enemy at the gate and it was a it was about the uh, invasion of stalingrad and it was it was shown through the eyes of a famous sniper that was in the battle of stalingrad and you know listen it takes it 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 shows you the whole that that whole invasion the whole battle the whole you know siege of stalingrad and world war 2 Listen, I, I like I, I walked away from that. It's it's like watching Private Ryan or something. You learn so much about history by watching those movies. You don't even realize you're, what you're learning. You don't even realize like, wow, like, you know, I, I actually, you know, they subtly get yourself a nice little history lesson while being entertained because let's face it, everybody wants to be entertained. Yeah, so, you know, that's what I'm, I'm just doing. You know, I, I pick stuff that I like. You know, I like, I like, I like mafia stuff, you know, I like cannabis stuff. I like psychedelic stuff, you know, and that's what I, I, I just want to, I want to paint these pictures, man. I, I want to show people, you know, and, and really, I mean, I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm biased and, and I, you could say, you know, I got a slanted perception because of, of everything I went through, but you know, that is my reality. 
you know, so I'm, I'm showing these stories through my lens and, you know, hopefully people, you know, can realize and it can open up, you know, some eyes and, you know, but at the end of the day, I want to entertain people. I want people to think what I'm doing is cool, but, you know, I do have these underlying issues and pretty much from my writing, pretty much everything I've done, I got these underlying issues. So what about, I, I was noticing you have a lot of B-roll. Are you, are you able to use B-roll from, come from, uh, movies like um what was the uh the untouchables like yeah so it's like uh so it's kind of like um you know like when rappers sample stuff right you can use like so much so you know in in, in documentary and in journalism and in the news it's called fair use so if you notice like when a, when a, when a news when a news uh agency is 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 taking footage like on the street or something they don't have to get all those people to sign off because it's right. it's journalism, you know. But if you did a movie, that's why in a movie they block everything off, right? You know, you know what I'm saying? Because you know you can't. Nobody's signing releases, so you know it's the same with fair use. As long as you use a certain amount, like you know, white boy, we use like the Beverly Hill Cops. You know, a lot of times it's like under six seconds, you know, or or something like that. But um, yeah, so so you can use it as long as you're using it, you know, for a journalistic reason. And there's, there's some like other things, you know, like, like when you use something like it can't be your main point, it can only be like supporting, you know, so I might have, uh, you know, somebody say like, oh, you know, the, the, the myth of the mafia man of honor or the, the mafia man of honor is a myth. And then I can show a little clip of the Godfather. Right. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that's how you do it. It's, it's, it's all fair use, man. And really that's, kind of like more the old school thing but i mean you see now with like youtube i mean they just rip everything dude they just rip everything people rip whatever they want and put it wherever they want and you know you know maybe if they make a lot of money there might be a lawsuit but you know i mean it's just it's just information and um i don't know i, I think i think that's cool man because what i try to do when i make a film i i try to get all these different you know forms of media and, and kind of mash them together. Like, you know, that's, that's what we did at white boy where, you know, you get the archival footage, you know, you get the uh, newspaper articles, you know, you get the talking head interviews, you know, you get the animation and you just kind of, you know, put it all together and mesh it all together. So, you know, when you're watching it, I think that's like really visually stimulating, you know, cause you just see all these different types of, of, of media you know, in forms of media and it, it's all put together in one place. And he, even like the dope man, you know, some of that stuff, you know, people have seen in, in different stuff, you know, cause some of that footage that we found, it's been, it's been around forever. Right. You know, but I, I'm just putting it in this new construction where I'm telling this story and, and kind of layering it, you know, all the way through, you know, so, you know, not only is the story good, you know, and the narrative is good, but I want it to be visually appealing too. Right. I was going to say, um, Cause I noticed like there was just, there was like tons of B roll and the B roll alone kind of tells the story. Yeah. So I was wondering, and I thought I'd seen some clips from movies that I'd recognize. And I thought, I wonder yeah, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, if that has to, if he has to pay somebody to use that, but it wasn't. No, I couldn't afford it. Yeah. I, right. yeah. If you only use it real, I couldn't afford it. I mean, you couldn't right. afford, you know, even for white boy, we got the Beverly Hills cop stuff in there. You know, we couldn't afford that, man. They would try to charge you an arm and a leg, you know, even, even, like, it's weird because if you just go find something yourself and put it in, 
you know, a lot of times you, you can uh, get away with it for, for fair use. But if you actually like go to the people and say like, oh, I want to use this or then they're going to try to charge you a licensing fee. So right. It's just it, it's just crazy. You know, but now on the Internet, I mean, you can pretty much find anything. Um, I was going to say I, I had talked to a, 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 a guy who's a well, he's actually a director and, and the producer. But he was saying that, for example, if you said, yeah, I remember when I was I was leaving Tampa, you know, we were headed, whatever we were headed for. We were headed to, you know, Atlanta or something. Uh, that song, whatever came on, you know, and he said, and because in the interview, the guy mentions the song, we are, he said, we were able to play the song so we can play. He said, where, as opposed to a few seconds of it, he's like, we were able to, to use that song for the next, whatever it was, 30 seconds or so of the interview and with, with B-roll. And then he said, I had, he had another interview where the guy was like, I forget what he said exactly, but let's say, you know, it was like the scene in the Godfather when, you know, when Michael says to, you know, whatever, you know, this, and then they show the scene and it was more than the two or three. it was like the whole scene. He said, but I could do that because in the course of the interview, the guy specifically mentioned the scene. He's like, so I'm just using it to support, you know, that interview. And he said, as a result yeah. of that, he said, we were able to play, you know, a 12 or 15 second scene. So, yeah. So I, I yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fair use. So that's a, the difference between docs and like a scripted film. You know, a scripted film has to be like totally original. You need all releases, you know, forms and stuff like that, or you got to license music or whatever. Where where docs, it's more, it's journalism. It's just visual journalism. So you know, because you can see, like on a news report, they could be interviewing somebody, and, and you know, a car drives by, you know, with fuck the police by NWA or whatever. You know, and they're not they're not going to take it out. You know, so right. and they're not going to get they're not going to get sued. There's no liability because it's journalism. Okay. Well, cool. So you're saying it's going to be up in about a month or so, roughly? Yeah, maybe sooner. I, I would say definitely within with, within the next month. I'd, I'd say definitely by the end of August. You know, so that's going to be up. Uh, Dopeman will be up. Um, Nightlife will be up. And then sometime in September, uh, my first episode of the Psychedelic Revolution, Secret History, the LSD trade will be up. And then after that, probably in October sometime, A Tortured Mind. You know, the reality of post-incarceration syndrome will be up. And I'd say then sometime in December before Christmas, the, the first episode of Tangled Roots will be up. I just want to, hey, I just want to be on the other side of it, man. You know right. what I'm saying? Uh, you know, it's been a struggle, you know, but this this is kind of like, uh, you know, three years of work, you know, that's kind of uh, coming together. And it, it just so happens, you know, because I've been working on them all steadily. So it's all... Uh, it's all coming out at the same time. So I, I just want to be, uh, you know, because that's like five hours of content for Outlaw Films. So that, that's going to be big. And, and I, got, I got a lot more stuff shot. So, you know, I got, I got the makings of like 13 hours of content. You know, I just, I just got to get it edited. You know, so, so next year I'll be coming out with more stuff. And then um, as soon as I get some of these projects off my plate, you know, and uh, get some more funding or, or the money starts coming back from the films, I'm, I'm going to be looking for more projects. Cause, cause that's my goal, man. I, I kind of want to be the, uh, I want to be like the Quentin Tarantino of, of kind of this, this true crime counterculture documentary stuff, you know, and in, in the next three years I'm planning on, uh, you know, developing and, um, putting out on the market, you know, 
you know, about 30 hours of, of content all kind of in this, you know, same vein, you know, which it'll follow the true crime. But, you know, like I say, my, my stuff is kind of more counterculture. I get better access, you know, because I was in prison for 21 years. I get better access than, than a lot of these mainstream filmmakers. And also, I, I think, too, uh, my work, I, I keep it more real, you know, because I'm just not a filmmaker coming into these cultures and examining them and making films about them. I'm from this culture, these cultures, these cultures I'm talking about. You know, not like I'm a mafia guy, but I was with a ton of mafia dudes in federal prison, you know, for years, 21 years. I, I know these guys. I've talked to them. I've written about them. I've interviewed them, you know, in prison. So, you know, I, I don't know how many other journalists or, or filmmakers can, can say that. All right. Well, so what um, will they'll do you want to put a link? You know, we can put some links in the description or. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely when I have links, I mean, we could just use my, my, my website or the YouTube links because the YouTube, you know, my, my YouTube channel, uh, Seth Ferrante's True Crime, it has like all the, the documentary links. And then on my website too, GorillaConvict.com, I have all the teasers. And then as the films become available, you know, I'll, I'll be putting, you know, those those Amazon and iTunes links up and, and stuff like that. But yeah, it's not going to be long, man. It's like, you know, probably within... I'd say the next 60 to 90 days, I mean, like Dopeman and Light Life are going to be everywhere, you know, all right, because well, it's going to, yeah, it'll be available to be Roku, you know, all, all the advertising video on demand and all the transactional video on demand platforms. Okay. You think, is there anything else we haven't talked about? No, man, I, I think, yeah, we covered a lot of stuff, man. I, I, I hope uh, people don't think we're conspiracy theorists. There's, no, I I sure we, might get, we might get brand, we might get branded now. I mean, listen, the government, I, I, the government's going to come after us. Listen, I've had some conspiracy theory guys on here. So trust me, this is nothing yeah. compared to that. This yeah. is very tame. Um, yeah. And, and honestly, let's face it, you know, I, I would say about a 95% chance that all of it's absolutely legit, you know, you know, even though, and, and know, I'd like to say, I'd like to say too, like, you know how like, uh, like law enforcement and the government people, they say like, oh, well, if you're selling drugs, we're coming after you. Yeah, well, I'm a filmmaker. I tell stories. So if you're in law enforcement and government and you're doing corrupt stuff and you're violating citizens and, and American people's rights, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to expose you and I'm going to put you on TV. Same Listen, thing. They, they hate that. They yeah. hate that. And the I only way did. you could stop me is you could kill me because you already put me in prison for 21 years and I'm still doing it. Listen, I just had a guy who was a, a sheriff's deputy who was a whistleblower at Broward County. And, you know, he was ex he was complaining that the guys he was working with were ripping off the drug dealers like they're stealing the money. They're taking these guys money. We're supposed to put the money in the bag and they're stealing these guys money and they're taking the drugs and reselling the drugs and keeping that money. And so he was like, you know, you guys should be in jail. So they ended up setting him up, got him indicted. He, he actually went to trial and won at trial. I interviewed that guy three months ago. His video blew up. It got like, I think it's all at almost 700,000 views now. So yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't like you hear his story, you wouldn't believe it. This is just because he was a whistleblower in the department. in the department. No, I do believe it. I do believe it. I've heard plenty of stories like that. You know, I mean, when you're in prison for 21 years, you hear all, you hear everything. Yeah. Oh, that, I mean, that's what I'm saying. They'll turn on their own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In a second, it's all about right, self-preservation. Yeah. 
Yeah, those people, most of the people, you know, I'm not saying everybody in law enforcement is bad. There's some good people in law enforcement. There's some good people in government. There's some good people in politicians. But, you know, if they're protecting the bad people, then they're just as complicit. Hey, if you like the video, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button, share the video, hit the bell so you get notified, leave me a comment. We're going to leave all of Seth's links in the description box. So check them out. And I really appreciate you guys watching the video. See ya. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm here with Seth Ferrante, and we're going to do a podcast on Seth's story. Seth was a, you know, I saw on Concrete, it was like the, the uh, what was it? He, he said you were like the LSD kingpin or something? or Yeah, yeah so basically, uh, Seth was uh, arrested and did 20, 24? you got 25 years. Yeah. Did 20, 21 years in federal prison for selling LSD. Yeah, right. LSD and cannabis. Yeah. And cannabis. Okay. So, all right, check it out. So, um, somebody asked me earlier too, and I was like the first question somebody asked me, and I didn't even know. Like, where where were you born? Yeah, I was born in Lemoore. Lemoore is actually out in the desert. They call it the Central Coast. It's between LA and San Diego. Okay. And you, I mean, I I kind of know the story. So you you grew up there, and you said you started basically with just what you start off just. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was a military brat. So I was, I was actually born on like a Navy base. You know, it's out in the desert. That's where like they, they, um, like they train fighter pilots. Right. You know, so um, my dad was basically a fighter pilot, and um, but he was the Navy. He used to fly off aircraft carriers. So we're in San Diego. We were in Virginia Beach. We were in Germany. We were in London. But we always ended back up in California usually until he retired, and that's kind of where my problems started because. I was like this California kid and I ended up in Northern Virginia, like in this really kind of uh, lily white upper class area, like right out of Washington, D.C. When I was when I was basically, you know, like a sophomore, junior in high school and being from California, you know, and, and at that age, like, you know, everybody were going out partying and just the weed that they got. They just got like garbage weed. It was like all brick weed, like brown shit. Right. And then uh, like if they could get LSD or something like that, it was just like super expensive, like $20 a hit. So, um, I mean, I knew a lot of people, you know, I had a lot of friends that were getting into that stuff, you know, back in California. So I started getting weed sent, you know, from Northern California, you know, like like Emerald Triangle, Humboldt County, bud. And from from like San Francisco, I started getting LSD sent. Okay. But you were how how I mean how old were you at that time when you were? Man, I was I was I was you young. Were young. I, I was like sixteen, yeah. So I was like sixteen, and at first, I mean, it was just for personal, right? You know what I'm saying? So I would just get personal, like you know, five or six of us, we would kind of put our money together, and you know, I'd get it sent, and I'd send the money, and um, but then eventually, like you know, if 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 you do drugs, and a lot a lot a lot of young kids, you know, kind of figure this out, or at least the smarter young kids figure this out. So when you're young and you're doing drugs, you know, and then finally you're like, well, fuck it, if I can get it, why should I pay for it? Right. So that's like the first thing you're like, you do it for free drugs. But then you know, after you do that for a while, you're like, well, fuck it, I don't want to pay for it, and I want to make money. Right. So you know, this was, and it wasn't something that just happened overnight. So this was a gradual thing, like you know, over my first probably nine to twelve months in Northern Virginia. You know, where I've like, hey, man, I can make money off this shit, you know, and then um, and then I, other stuff happened. Like I, I started going on tour like at 17. I started going on Grateful Dead tour 
And uh, anybody that knows anything about the Grateful Dead tour, like in the uh, late 80s, you know, like we're talking like 1988. Right. You know, like what they call Shakedown Street or The Lot. I mean, it was basically like an open air drug market. Right. So... And, and, and like I say, when I say open air, air drug market, I don't mean like cocaine, heroin. There, there was that stuff around, but it's mostly like, like I call it, you know, like I'm a weed and psychedelics dude. You know, right. I was never into cocaine. I was never into heroin speed. You know, I, I hate amphetamines. I don't even like MDMA. You know, I've never been like a, a, you know, amphetamine type of guy. So I was always into like the, the psychedelics, you know, in cannabis, you know, hash, mushrooms, you know, even stuff like peyote, mescaline. You know, so that was kind of like where I leaned, you know, kind of on that side. So I would go to these dead shows. And the big thing about the dead shows, like, I mean, it's just this big lot and everybody's selling drugs. So I had two reasons I went to the dead shows. One reason is because um, I established a connect down in Kentucky that, that grew weed and they grew pretty good weed, you know, compared to the brick weed from Texas that was coming around. So I would take that weed. I would grab that weed for whatever, 16, 1800 a pound. And I would take that on dead tour and I would sell it for $200 an ounce. And if it was good weed, like what they call kind bud. And when they say kind bud, they were referring to like the bud from Humboldt County, you know, the Emerald Triangle, which I could usually only get in the fall, you know, right. in harvest time. But that's what they wanted. They wanted that good sun grown organic. Because the bud. brick weed was basically crap. The it brick was... weed, yeah, the brick weed was crap. So, you know, that's what the deadheads wanted, you know, to go with that whole hippie vibe. So I started going and I started selling bud on tour. You know, and I was making a you know considerable amount of money, not doubling my money, but you know I was usually making like you know a thousand, a thousand, twelve hundred pound, and I, it was easier to get. I got better LSD contacts on tour because you know I, I had some friends and they could get like some sheets here and there, but they couldn't really, you know, they couldn't really like hit me off, and I, I had to pay like you know I wasn't paying wholesale prices like they were getting it basically like retail prices, you know, but still you know not not like they were selling hits, you know, I was getting buying whole sheets from yeah. them, you know, so I was probably getting like paying like a dollar or $2 a hit and selling it for $5 a hit. But then I knew if I went on tour and I hooked up with the right people, I could basically get it for like 30, 40 cents a hit. You're not making it though. You're just, you just have a contact. Yeah, no, I, I never made it. So, you know, but, um, cause when I was locked up, I, I met one guy, the, like the whole time I was locked up, one guy that actually made LSD. I mean, because you know, it's it's not like it's easy. It's not like growing growing weed. It's like yeah. the, this no, guy. No, you got to be a chemist. I yeah, mean, you, you got to be a chemist. So, you yeah. know, So, um, yeah. So, what I know about the whole LSD trade is a lot of times at the shows, they would fly in. They would fly in the liquid. So, you know, they would fly in. They fly in like twenty five grams, you know, at a time. But you know, each each one of those grams makes ten thousand hits. Yeah. You know, to give you the number. So, pretty much every dead show. And you, the dead used to crisscross the nation. You know, they used to play everywhere. And they would play multiple nights. So every show, every town, like let's say they played three nights in Philly, you know, from San Francisco, all that stuff is still basically made in that area. You know, all the chemists, you know. And a lot of times it's it's the same guys from the 60s. You know, maybe they had like, uh, you know, they mentored other guys, younger guys, and brought other guys into the trade. But, you know, it's it's like it's not it's not like a big group of people. I mean, they, they keep it pretty you know, secret, because it's a lot to even, like now, to, to even get the precursors and all the other stuff, I mean, they've outlawed a lot of that yeah. stuff, so it's really hard to get the stuff to make it, you know, but, I mean, like I say, one one gram is 10,000 hits, so you don't need a lot, 
Yeah, he was the guy was telling me like he, they would get the sheets of paper and he the you know perforated sheets of paper and he was like it was you you're literally just putting a like a, a droplet on each yeah the blotter paper. Well, what also they do is um they actually they actually dip it the whole, all the whole sheet yeah they so they dip it so like what you got like one sheet of a hundred hits is about this big so that's like a sheet and then they would have what you call like a page so a page would be like a hundred of those all right okay or no ten of those so that would be like you know, a thousand hits, okay. you know, a hundred. And then they had what you call a book would be 10 pages. And then, you know, that would be like 10,000 hits. That's like a gram of LSD, you know, but it's all, it's all the blotter paper, you know, it, it absorbs it. And that's pretty much, you know, um, I mean, it's not a perfect science because some places might absorb more than others. Right. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of chemists. So, you know, that's basically, they've kind of explained a lot of this stuff to me, but yeah, I've never done it. But I know they would fly it in and, um, you know, then like when they get it there, then they would go through the process of, of laying it on the sheets, you know, where, where they kind of dip it in it or whatever. Right. You know, and uh, they all would also do a lot of liquid. I remember going to the shows, and this is kind of funny because whenever there were shows, they would have a lot of the deadheads or the hippie kids would go to the local grocery stores and they would buy all the boxes of the food coloring. You know, like the food coloring, it comes in these like right. little, little boxes and there's like 10 or something or sometimes five. Right. And those were like what they would use for the vials. So they would get that food coloring and they would pour it all out, you know, and clean it out. And then they would fill that up because that one vial in that food coloring, that was like like 100, that was like 100 hits. You know, so they would sell vials too because some people would do like straight liquid. I even did, I did some liquid one time. So one time I was at some shows in, in, in Pittsburgh, like in 89. And, uh, you know, I'd always been a big fan of Jimi Hendrix. And I, and I used to read how Jimi Hendrix, he used to take his bandana and he would just pour like a whole vial of acid on his bandana and then he would wrap it around his head. You know, so it's not like he was taking 100 hits, but I mean, he was absorbing. Yeah, yeah, he's still absorbing it. A lot of that. So, so one time at this show in Pittsburgh, it was actually right after uh, Brett Midland, the keyboardist, a real popular keyboardist, died. He, he like OD'd on a speedball. And um, I was like, man, I was on this Jimi Hendrix trip. You know, I, maybe I'd seen some documentary or something. I don't know, or read about it in Rolling Stone or something. So I actually took and I poured three quarters of a bottle, basically like 75 hits on a bandana. And then I, then I, I wrapped it around my head. And this is like this is like before the show starts, you know, because back then it was way different back then, like. You had like free reign in the whole stadium, man. It wasn't like all the security, like they cordoned off this area and you can right. only go here with your tickets. Like back then, dude, like you gave your ticket, you went in the stadium, you, you go know, from the lot. Yeah, you can even go back out to the lot, you know, because a lot's like, you know, Shakedown Street. So it's like a party and stuff like that. So I, this one time I did it and I took all this fucking 75 hits, right? And we're waiting for the show to start. And everybody used to go up to the top. So this is Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh. Everybody would go up to the top and smoke weed, you know, because you don't want to smoke weed. You don't want to front out the security or whatever. So if you went up top, they didn't give a fuck. So we walked up, me and my buddy. He, he'd only take maybe like 25 hits. He took the rest of the bottle, but he drank it, you know. So, you know, he took like really ingested 25 hits. You know, I don't know how... Mine was 75 hits, but it was in a bandana, so it's not like I took 75 hits. Right. But it was, you know, going into my skin. So we walked up to go to the smoking section. You know, everybody's smoking weed. And so we're up there, you know, we, everybody got their, you know, big ounces or quarter pounds. We're rolling up fatties, and we're smoking them. And then, like, the show starts, you know, so, like, everybody goes back down to the field because then it would just be the whole field would just be, like, wide open. Everybody would be dancing. So me and my buddy, though, like, 
the trip starts, you know, kicking in. Right. So we're like, we're like looking at the steps, you know, you know, like in a lot of the stadiums, I mean, it's, it's kind of steep, right. You know, so we're like, you start tripping balls. Right. So we don't go back down. We're like, Oh no, we're just going to stay over here. We're going to smoke some more weed. So it ended up, we stayed up there and this is, this is like, I mean, they used to play, they play like two sets, man. So they play like, you know, like an hour and a half and then they come back, play another hour and a half. So this is like three hours, dude. Like we're up there. Like our friends keep coming up trying to, Hey man, come down. And we're like, we're like, look, and we're like, fuck no. Like a couple of times we would try it to walk down too, the steps. It's too steep, yeah, right? Cause you're we too tripping cons- fucking balls, man. Right. So we couldn't walk down. So eventually, um, like the show's over and like we stayed up there the whole time and eventually everybody leaves. Right. And uh, like the people are going around cleaning, you know, and they're like looking at us like, what the fuck are these dudes doing? You know, we're just up there like smoking weed, tripping. And uh, so I don't even know. It seemed like forever. But eventually, like a dude, one of the custodian guys comes to us, you know, and he was like, yo, man, he's like, they're about to lock the doors of the stadium. Like, you need to go now. You need to get the fuck out of here. There's like nobody. There's just like trash everywhere. People picking up shit. So finally, uh, we actually like we crawled down you know, like backwards, you know, on the steps, you know, like crawled right. down backwards until we got to like the, uh, you know, like one of the main floors, you know, and then, then we could walk out. But yeah, that was crazy. That's the most acid I ever took at one time. And um, like, I can only say, I, I remember it, but I mean, it was, um, I mean, I think I had a good time, even though like I missed a show and I was like scared to walk out because it was like a ledge, man. It was like crazy. I still, to this day, I have like vivid memories of trying, like I'm telling you, probably in that however many hours, three to five hours, I probably attempted to walk down those steps like 20 or 25 times, me and my buddy. And I just, I couldn't do it. It was not happening until finally like, and you know, acid lasts a long time too. So, you know, I was still tripping. It was just like, they were going to lock the door and I didn't want to get fucking, you know, right. locked in the fucking stadium. Um, so, so I mean, how, so it, it, at some point though, like you started, I mean, you know, you, you kind of started selling more and more, you're making money at it. You're, you know, yeah, really. I kind of, my business kind of exploded when everybody started going to college. Right. So, you know, first I'm like a sophomore and then I'm getting more into it when I'm a junior. And, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm selling to the sophomores and I'm selling to the seniors. You know, and I was kind of like that guy. I was kind of like that yeah, yeah. dude in high school. Like if you wanted weed, if you wanted LSD, I was like the dude. And I don't care. I would sell like 10 sheets. I would sell multiple sheets. I would sell like five or 10 hits. You know, because I was like, whatever. It was all money to me. Plus, I always felt, you know, I always felt like I was feeling a need, you know, because I felt like people wanted good, clean drugs, you know, and I always felt like, you know, weed and LSD, you know, and and mushrooms and stuff like that. I always felt they were good drugs. I didn't feel like they were bad drugs. You know, I didn't carry a gun. I didn't have a criminal organization. You know what I'm saying? I go around, beat people up. You know, a lot of times people pay cash. A lot of people times people fronted, I fronted stuff to people. A lot of times people that I fronted stuff to were my friends and they fucked up the money and I still didn't do it. I was like, well, whatever, I can make more money. Right. That was always kind of like my attitude. So, um, you were saying you didn't, you don't really feel like it should be illegal anyway. I mean, it's yeah, like, yeah, that was, yeah. I always tell, I tell people to this day, this is my big thing, right? I was never a criminal, right? I broke laws that I thought were wrong. Right. You know, I was an outlaw. 
You know what I'm saying? So, you know, like I say, I, to me, there's a difference. You know, I mean, in prison, you got criminals and you got outlaws, you know, and maybe to the government and law enforcement, it's all the same because, you know, we're breaking the laws of society. But I mean, there's a difference. Anybody. I mean, you know, you've been in prison, man. There's a difference. You know, a lot of times a criminal is going to do whatever he can. You know, a criminal like fuck you over for a dollar. Right. You know, where like an outlaw has like morals. You know, some kind of code that he's trying to live by. Yeah, so you know, th- there's a big difference, but um, yeah. So I probably really exploded, like probably like around '89. You know, when I was a senior, so um, a lot of my friends had went off to colleges, you know, and were like freshmen, and and so I went to Robinson, and Robinson was a big school in in Fairfax County. So Robinson was probably like four thousand people. And then we had a sister school that was like not even five miles away called Lake Braddock. And Lake Braddock would have like 4,000 kids. And so, you know, for two years, you know, going on three years, I had been selling, you know, drugs, you know, LSD and, and, and uh, weed to all these people in these schools, you know, going all the part. And, you know, like I say, everybody smoked weed back then. It didn't matter, you know, if you were a jock. You know, if you were a stoner, you know, if you like we call them truckers, like the dudes with the big four by fours, you know, if you, you know, some Virginia, you got like the more country dudes, you know, so didn't, you know, the cheerleaders, you know, the popular kids, everybody smoked weed, everybody did LSD, everybody did mushrooms, you know, some of them did coke, but you know, I didn't, I didn't really fuck with those people. That wasn't really my scene. So when these people started going to colleges, like, and these are all good kids from from good families, you know, not necessarily like super rich, you know, some more rich than others, but all upper middle class, you know, like all these kids, like they got a Mustang, Mustang or like a hand me down Beamer or Mercedes when they were 16. Right. You know, and, um, you know, so so when they all went off, they, they went to all these colleges, you know, like like Penn State, you know, University of Maryland, you know, um, you know, Kentucky University, UK, you know, West Virginia University, you know, all the way like Virginia Tech, right? you know, Radford, uh, you know, VCU, you know, all the Virginia schools. So I just had like all these friends that went to all these different colleges and all within, you know, pretty much neighboring states to Virginia. So but when they, they, still, all- they still need drugs yeah so they're going and i mean you want to go because like when you're a senior you want to go to the colleges anyhow because you want to party you know check out the girls and see what college is like because i mean that's what it's about in the suburbs you know you go to school and then you know you go to college and it's like a party so um like they're calling me up there you know and and i'm going and they want me to bring drugs they're like hey dude what can you bring whatever they're like i need this for me and like my whole frat everybody needs shit so i started going and it just like turned in it was like just this little kind of local thing, you know, where I was kind of like, you know, a retail dude, but not really a big wholesale. I did maybe a little wholesale, but that was like real small part of my market. It was mostly retail, right? you know, hand to hand stuff. And it just turned into where, you know, I remember the first time I, I went to Radford, right? I went to Radford in uh, the beginning of the semester. So late August, 1990. And, uh, Radford is like kind of like the uh, sister school to Virginia Tech. Radford used to be like an all-girls school, but then you know then they changed it so guys could come. And um, and Virginia Tech is like right there too. So it's these two. You know, Virginia Tech is a really huge school, but Radford's a pretty big school. So 
like August 1990, I, I go to I go to Radford and I had just picked up some bud that they just harvested in Kentucky. And back then, like sometimes like in the summer, like it would get dry, man. Like you couldn't find any weed. And if you did find weed, it would be like brown, you know, garbage brick weed with seeds. So I, w I was always known for getting the good bud from like Kentucky or Northern California. So this time I brought I brought like a ton of uh, not a ton, but probably like 20 pounds you know, just harvested fresh, you know, good green bud. And, um, I actually go, I go to my dude's house, right. And my dude has a house and it's, it's kind of like a little, you know, duplex apartment thing. So like he has a house right here and then his buddy has a house right here. And so I bring bud and he's like, man, he's like, man, nobody has bud. He's like, everybody wants bud. I'm like, well, fucking call him, dude. I'm like, we're, we're here. So we break out the fucking triple beam. Right. And first I'm like in his room and like people are coming, but you know, it was like so many fucking people. Like, it was like crazy. So what we ended up doing is we w ended up going to his friend's apartment, which was like kind of connecting, you know, across the way. And we had that door and we put like a table in front of the door like we're a fucking vendor. And me and this other dude, you know, my road partner, we're basically weighing stuff out. And there was like a line. So there was like a line all through this walkway and all through my friend's house because they would come in my friend's house the front door and then you know come out in this side door and we go and it was like a line dude and we like literally quartered ounced up weed for probably like three hours straight you know and i would like literally like sitting at the table throwing fucking money in the back like i don't even know how, how much money i don't even know how much weed i'm selling but you know at the end i mean we still had some left i probably had about five or six pounds left but i i literally probably sold 14 15 pounds in three hours all for like quarters and ounces. And I just have like this big duffel bag of money, you know, and that, that was just like, that's like what it was back then. And I did that. And once I did that first, I was like, man, I was like, I can make a lot of money doing this. You know, that was my first thought. But second, I was like, man, I got to find a better fucking process. Cause this right. is like some bullshit. Cause it's, yeah. you know, I mean, back then it was marijuana, you know, the war on drugs and all that shit. I was like, man, this is like, this is like too open, you know? So, what I did among the people I knew at the different colleges, you know, cause I had some situations at other colleges like that, you know, that was the, the most extreme situation. Right. That's why I'm telling the story, but you know, I had different situations <laughs> it like that. It's a good scene though. Yeah. So, um, I, I just started finding dudes like some of my friends, you know, like the, the smartest, most trustworthy or on point friends. And I would just go to them and I say, look, dude, check this out. I'm going to come in. I'm going to drop you like 20 sheets of acid. I'm going to drop you like five pounds of bud. And then, you know, you can do all the hand to hand sales and you know, this is how much you owe me. And then I'll come back and get it. Right. So I did that at all these different colleges. So I started doing this loop, you know, where I would go down, I would go down 81 in Virginia and, and hit all the Virginia colleges. Then, then I'll come back through Kentucky. I would go to Eastern, Eastern Kentucky. And then I would go up to UK. Then I would come back to West Virginia, West Virginia university, which West Virginia University in Morgantown was like my hugest market, man. That place at that time in 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 the late '80s, like West Virginia, like in, in Playboy magazine, like West Virginia University was always like in the top five party colleges. You know, like like it was just fucking crazy. It was just known. Right. You know what I'm saying? They always had like a big football program. You know, they were always kind of big in football, but uh, they were just known. It was known as like a super party college. So, um, and I, I had, I had my buddies were in the Delta Tau Delta fraternity and they had this big fucking huge old dilapidated mansion, like on a frat row. And they just used to have these 
big ass fucking parties. So they used to have these these uh they used to have this party. It was called the uh and it was called like the it was called like the the backyard, not the backyard brawl, but it was called like the backyard something. I can't think of the the, the second name. But so it was called like the the backyard brawl or backyard bash or something whatever that's yeah. it backyard bash right. you got the word so it was called the backyard bash so they would have this party and there would be like literally five thousand kids and they would always have it right in the beginning of the semester and there would literally be five thousand kids like going through this old dilapidated mansion and then they had like this big you know backyard and parking spot and they would get like reggae bands and stuff like that and so I would go to there and, you know, at first, like it would be like I would be selling hand to hand. Eventually, I got one of my dudes to do everything. But uh, like their parties were so big that eventually uh, West Virginia University, like told them they couldn't have the backyard bash anymore. They were like, you guys, that party's outlawed. You can't have it. So like, you know what these dudes did, right? Because these are like some little, you know, little smart, you know, also entitled rich right. kids. They were like, okay. So they called it the Ackyard Ash, you bring the bees. Okay. So they just changed the name like that and still had the same fucking party. You know, they were basically like, fuck the university. But um, that's what I did. I, I cultivated these relationships. I kind of made friends of mine that were drug users, you know, partiers into drug dealers. And um, so you now you're just the distributor. Yeah. So this started like 89. So then by the time like 91, when I'm really rolling, uh, I'm basically supplying like 15 colleges in five states with uh, weed and LSD. Okay. So that's a full-time job. No, definitely. Like I say, at this time too, like I didn't work a job because that was my job, but I actually went to college a couple times, just like, you know, the local community college, but it was always like, I even... I came down to Florida, dude. I came down to Florida in 89, in the fall of 89. And um, I was enrolled at, uh, what's it called? The uh, USF. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was, en- I was enrolled. I my yeah. Degree. yeah, I was enrolled in USF, right? In, in the fall of 89. But it, I mean, it didn't last because uh, I was like, I was just drawn. You know, I was drawn to like the dead shows. I was drawn to the dead scene. You know, I was drawn to the... Uh, you know, just like to me, because to me, being that drug dealer, it was it was like being a rock star. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't even the money. It was a lifestyle. And not to say, I mean. No, you're the guy calling the shots. Everybody's like, hey, they, well, they need something for from you. And you're they're, they're, They treat you with respect. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I know. It's, and then and then, too, it's like uh, just the, the chicks do because like like I would have like I had like multiple girlfriends just like at colleges. I would have like different chicks like I would like if they were in the dorms, I would move them out, get them an apartment just so I had like a, a safe place to lay my head and I would pay like their apartments. So, like I said, I was making a lot of money for a teenager. Right. I mean, I, I always tell people like I was making like twenty, twenty, thirty thousand a month. Right. Like not generating, like I was making profit. I mean, generating. I was probably you know generating like you know a couple hundred thousand a month. Right. You know, but I was literally making you know twenty five, thirty grand a month. I mean, twenty grand, thirty grand a month is a lot of money for a grown adult raising a family. That's a, that's a ton of money for yeah. for a kid. That's and this was like this was like you know eight, eighty nine, ninety. But really, I I always tell people too because you know. I, I sold drugs, so so probably from like, whatever, 16 to I got busted at 20, so four years. But it was really only like, 
nine months where I was at that height. So it was that last nine months, like 90, you know, into when I caught my case, uh, you know, the fall of 91. So, you know, cause, cause before, like everything I'll explain, this is when I'm like putting everything together, you know, I'm getting all my, my sources and my contacts straight. You know, I, I got it eventually, like, I didn't even have to go on tour to get the acid because I developed where they would just, they would send me, they would send me like a hundred sheets, 10,000 hits. And I was basically getting like a hundred, a hundred thousand hits a month, you know, sent to me. And then for the weed, you know, I would get in the fall to about January, I would get weed sent from, uh, you know, San Francisco from like Northern California, you know, Emerald Triangle bud. And I would drive down to Kentucky myself and, and get their bud, you know, which was that they grew domestically, which was pretty good. It wasn't as good as a Humboldt bud, but you know, it was close. And then the rest of the year from January until like August, I would basically get the, the brick pot, the Mexican brick pot. And, um, I even dude, I used to get a lot of weed out of Fort Myers. I would drive down to Fort Myers, Florida. You know, I used to, I used to go to Dallas, Texas. I'd fly to Dallas, Texas, but I would drive down to Fort Myers, Florida, and I would get weed from actually, it was like Kentucky dudes that were getting the weed down here. Like, so they'd grow the weed, you know, all year in the fall. And then in the winter, you know, sometimes they would come down here, you know, to kind of keep the business going. So I'd go down to Fort Myers and I wasn't picking up a lot, man. And, you know, I pick up like whatever, 50 pounds, 100 pounds of brick pot, which when it's all compressed like that, you know, it's not that much. And also what I was doing was, uh, I was flying down to Dallas and I would, I would bring money and I would, I would get like 50 pounds or something, 40, 50 pounds. And I would actually pack it in a suitcase and I would check it and I would, and I would fly back with it. You know, like I was, I was doing that like when I was 17. So that was crazy. Cause back then, you know, back then you didn't, you could go right to the airport. Right. And you could say like, you could buy a ticket. You could say like, my name is Joe Smith. Right. And you could pay him cash. For a one-way ticket, you know, and no, I go, no, no red flags, no nothing, and I go down with it like I had a, this green, big green 1970s Samsonite, uh, you know, suitcase, you know, huge, huge, probably like you know this big, right. and I fly down, I check it, it was empty, you know what I'm saying, and I go down and I literally sit at my buddies down there because I, I had some buddies that went to University of Texas at Arlington, so I and they had developed some Mexican contacts down there, so I would lit- literally go down there sit and wait on the Mexican dudes, you know, until, until they had their shit ready. I dealt with this one dude named Mexican Eddie and, um, I would literally get the weed, buy it, pack it back in the suitcase. You know, I'd wrap it and stuff like that. And then I would check it, check it in my luggage. I'd go back, buy a one-way ticket cash. This time I might be Chris Smith. Right. And go to, uh, you know, Dallas or, uh, you know, DC national airport and go pick it up off the carousel. So, you know, I, I didn't do that a lot, but I, I probably did that probably like, I don't know, 15 times over the years, you know, but mostly I was, I was a smuggler, you know, I, I was driver, I was a driver. That's what I would did. I, Cause I knew I figured out at a very early age, if you buy a product or, you know, drug like weed or, or LSD in one point, you know, and brought it to another point, I, you know, that's how you made money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you could leave that on the table. You don't have to. It's not a big deal. All right. Um, I mean, this is pretty casual. I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm a director, so I'm like, I'm like anal with get get everything <laughs> yeah. out of the fucking shot. I was thinking of the the Fort Myers thing. I wrote a story about these two guys that ran basically like it was one of the largest um, 
uh, largest bust in that area um, from the DEA. I think they got caught with like 1,200 pounds or something. It was just like, you know, and to just get to get seized, to get caught with 1,200 pounds, God only knows what, you know, if that's just the one thing they caught you with. Yeah, that's just the one shipment. They got. Yeah, but that was Fort Myers. Fort Myers is a big, you know, it's big for marijuana, for bringing in marijuana. Plus, what, what was the other guy's name that we did? Cowboy. Uh, the, 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 um, the saltwater, cow- saltwater cowboy, yeah, he, but he oh, was Tim McBride, yeah, yeah, Tim yeah, McBride, yeah, he's yeah. off. Uh, yeah, he was in the Keys. He was, yeah, in the yeah. Keys. Oh, that dude was a huge fucking yeah. marijuana smuggler. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, 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 boy, he's an interesting character too. Mm-hmm. Um, See, that's that's why I always look like I'm not saying for a teenager. I, w- I was a big drug dealer for a teenager, but like when I really look at it, like after after doing all that time in the feds and stuff like that, like I look at it. I mean, I was a small, I was a small timer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, for, for a kid, yeah, I mean, and who knows if I didn't get busted, maybe I would have got bigger, you know, you never know. But, you know, once I got in the feds and even like dude like like Tim, like, I mean, those dudes were just, right. I mean, they're bringing in fucking tons. So, yeah. I mean, we got an organization or a crew that's bringing in tons. I mean, really what I was doing, I mean, I'm like a minnow, you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's it's hard to, you know, it's, you know, you get in front of the judge and you could. You know, they, they make oh, you they sound don't give fucking, a fuck. They, they make you sound act like, like a, I was fucking John Gotti or Pablo Escobar of the fucking suburbs of the fucking feds. Every every fucking new case is public enemy number one. Yeah, absolutely. I always love that, that these guys get in front of the judge and they make them sound like just the most dangerous criminal in, in the world. And then they send them to a low. Yeah. Or they send him to a camp. Uh, You're like, yeah. if, if I'm so dangerous, how did you? How did I go directly to a camp? No, it's fucking, it's fucking crazy, man. That's that's our our criminal justice system, man. It, the, it's it's all, they got all their priorities wrong. But so, um, so yeah, what what? Sorry. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I I had like nine months where where I was rolling, where like, like I was like. I mean, I was probably the man, but, you know, like, I really was really feeling myself. Like, I thought I was a man, you know, where it was where, like, I had built everything up over a couple years. And, you know, even, too, like, like as a kid, you know, I mean, teenagers, I mean, you second guess yourself, you know, you're insecure, you know. So I, I was doing this for several years and, you know, maybe I still didn't feel how I wanted to feel. And then, like, dude, I had, like, that nine, that last nine months before I got busted. Like, I, I was on top of the world. Like, I, I could literally, I felt like, do anything I wanted. I had enough money. You know, one time, right before I got busted, dude, like, I went to Hawaii. I just went to Hawaii for two fucking months, dude. I was like, man, fuck it. You know, I was like, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. So I, I put a couple dudes, you know, that actually they ended up on my case and they they ended up telling on me. But I, I put them, I said, okay, you're in charge of weed. You're in charge of the LSD. Right. I'm just going to go to fucking... You know, just fucking stack my money. I'm gonna go to fucking Hawaii for fucking two months and just chill out. You know, but uh, yeah. And then, like I say, I you know I had a bunch of different girlfriends, but I was always the type of dude to usually like I would have like runs with girls. You know, I would have like six to like I would always have a main girl. Well, I had like a six to nine month run with her, and she'd be like my girl. Even though I might have had you know other girls that I just saw every now and then. Right. You know, but that was kind of like. You know, there's some 80s stuff. I don't know. Maybe people would look down on that today. I, but I it's don't. A, it's um, a more it's a more sensitive world today. So, so what what was the like? What was the the catalyst that brought it all down? That yeah. So basically, um, I mean, looking back, I mean, at the time, I thought it was like a real bright idea. But looking back, it was probably pretty stupid. So, uh, you know, the summer '91. Usually, like in the summer, it would get dry. There's no weed, right? So before I, I took that trip to Hawaii, 
you know, in this in the spring of '91, you know, I set shit up because I was always gearing up for the fall because with the fall was when I could really make money. So I needed to like get my money up for the fall. So when they harvested in Northern California and Kentucky, so I could buy up a lot of bud because you want to buy up in the harvest. You want to buy up of the bud early, like you want to buy when the farmers are hurting, like late August, September. You know, because you can get shit for cheaper, right? You know what I'm saying? Then by like October, November, by January. So it's like the weed you can get for 1600 in September. By January, that weed might be like 3000 Right. You know, so that was always my, my thing because, you know, I was trying to maximize my profits. So I had this bright idea in the spring of 91 when all my friends were going to be home from school, you know, because school was over. I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to fucking sell as much acid as I can this summer so I can get my money up for the fall. You know, and plus, like I say, that nine months I was making money, but I was probably spending money recklessly because when you got money coming in that young, you know, like water, I mean, it was just going out the door like water. I, I didn't give a fuck. I was just like fucking spend money on anything. I didn't give a fuck. I was, I was really, I was dumb. I was a type of kid, and I'm sure, you know, you might have known kids like this, but I was a kid that I would buy like some expensive polo T-shirts or whatever, and I would wear that shit one time right? and I would give it away. Cause I was like, I only wear new shirts. That was like my thing. Like I only wear new shirts. I don't wear fucking old shirts. I don't wash my shit. You know, yeah. like I'm saying. So, you know, I'm, I mean, I had some shit that I probably wash, you know, right. uh, you know, keep it real or whatever. But no. you know, that was, that was like my thing. You know, I'm not going to front like every fucking shirt I had was like brand new, but I, that was like, that was like one of my things. And also another one of my things was, uh, sneakers, man. I was a fucking, Sneakerhead, you know, so the Air Jordans had started coming out like probably, probably like 85, 86. So, you know, by like you're talking like 90, 91, there's like a fucking shitload of Air Jordans and a shitload, you know, everybody else jumped on the sneakers. So, like, I literally had like hundreds and hundreds of pairs of fucking high tops. Yeah, that sounds like Bozy. Uh, he, yeah. he had, if he, he had like a, a storage unit filled with two, three hundred pairs of, uh, of sneakers. It was just like he had a wall like in his room that was just sneakers. I was like, yeah. are you wearing all the sneakers? He's like, no, I never wear them. I just had them. I just Why? like to go buy them. Yeah. He, yeah. He said, yeah. he said, oh, I cool. just like, I just like to spend the money, dude. To me, it was like just go and spend it. And I always, I always had this thing like just spending cash, dude. I just love to spend cash, you know, cause everybody else is like credit cards. Right? Right. I just used to like, dude, like literally. And and not like I'm spending over $10,000 or whatever because they still have that $10,000 thing back then. But, you know, I just used to love to go to, like, stores or go to the mall and just fucking drop, like, five or six grand. You know what? I would buy mostly my stuff, but sometimes it might be girls. I might bring some guys to my crew. I'd buy them shit, too. And I would just go on these fucking whatever, whatever I had, a five, six, seven, eight, and I would just fucking drop that shit in the fucking mall in a day. But so I'm, I'm fucking... You know, doing all went off on a tangent again, but you know. right. yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to get my money up because I was fucking spinning reckless, like how I just described. And so I just had this fucking awesome idea. I'm like, fuck, because I knew it's going to be dry. I knew there's going to be no weed. I'm like, you know what? I'm like, I'm just going to fucking pump out as much fucking acid as I can in the summer of 91. And I'm going to make as much money as I can. So I got my money stacked for the fall so I can fucking make a killing. Cause I know the falls is, is when I'm really going to make the killing every fall. That's when I made a lot of money. So, um, all my friends are back from the colleges, so they don't have the whole college to sell to. It's just all my fucking high school friends from these two high schools, Robinson and Lake Braddock. And so dude, so literally acid is going for like five, $6 a hit. 
I flooded the areas with so much fucking acid. Like usually I, I would do like, uh, you know, 10,000 hits a month, but that's like all the colleges. Right. So now I'm fucking, I'm like, fucking, I'm, I'm going to get like 150 sheets. I'm going to get like 15,000, 20,000 hits and I'm going to flood it all. All my people are in Fairfax County. You know, there's no colleges. So I actually, the price of acid that summer went from like five, $6 a hit down to like one to $2 a hit. Cause I flooded it so much, you know, like, you yeah. know, I mean, looking back, I was a fucking dumbass, you know, cut my own throat, but whatever, you know, at the time I thought I was fucking brilliant. I was like, yeah. So, um, not only did I flood the area, but it was just, I mean, there's fucking acid. There's just, everybody's just tripping all fucking summer. And eventually you, what happened is, uh, there was this kid, uh, I mean, I never met the kid, but he was like a little 15-year-old kid. He was at this big field party in Clifton. You know, Clifton was like the kind of rich, real ritzy area in Fairfax County where they had like the million-dollar houses and they would have like these big, you know, five, six-acre lots. So the kids that lived there, when their parents, you know, just like when any parents would, you know, go on vacation, you know, they would throw parties, except they would throw like these big field parties, you know, and people, people would be like stages for bands, or they might bring like fucking uh, skateboard ramps and all types of shit. So it'd be like this fucking crazy fucking scene. And so there was this big party, but eventually like all parties out in the suburbs, you know, eventually the cops are called. So um, this one kid was tripping balls on acid and the cops came and somehow he was running through the woods naked and um, like a cop was chasing him, you know, right. and the cop like tackled him. And for some reason, this kid grabbed the cops, you Gun. know, service oh, yeah. revolver and, uh, you know, luckily only shot him in the arm. Right. You know, so, I mean, whatever flesh wound, but, I, you know, I'm sure it was painful, whatever. I don't know if it hit the bone. I don't know all the exact details, but I know he shot him in the arm. And um, so once this happened, you know, and then that kid, like, you know, whatever, he said, yeah, he was blamed it on the acid. Of course. Told him where he got the acid from. and um, Which he could have been drunk and the same fucking thing would have happened. I mean, who knows? Yeah, that, I mean, know. I always say, look, if it's in you, it's in you. Yeah, the yeah. drug is not going to bring it out. Right. You know? Just just like in prison, like, we, you know, when they talk about dudes do homosexual shit. If it's in you, it was yeah. in you before, you know, in oh, yeah, yeah. Well, multiple just, ways it was yeah. in you. I was just... <laughs> Well, it's just when I'm in prison, <laughs> bro. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, so so this this happens, and actually, the dude that sold him the acid was actually I knew him personally because at one time I had sold. He went to Lake Braddock. I had sold to him, you know, for probably like you know my first two years. Yeah. But by this time, like there's like seven people between me and him because you know he was a cool dude, but he was like this metal dude. He actually ended up on my case, but. Uh, you know, he was a, he was this metal dude, and I, did, I just thought, like, the way he sold drugs, he would just sell to anybody, you know. So I didn't, right. you know, so there was, like, seven people separated, you know, between me and him, but it was still all my shit. So um, this kid said he got it from this guy. His name was Dave, the metal guy. And, um, yeah, and they started an investigation, man. And um, really it was, like, you know, and this, this is how law enforcement in this country reacts, too, like, if you do something to law enforcement, like you, if you shoot a cop or something, like they go hard, man. Yeah. They don't fuck around. Like, they take you know, it seriously now. Yeah, they're like, man, 
you know, like you touched one of ours, you know, they're like, I mean, they're like a gang, like any fucking gang or the mafia, you know, you, you know, just like the criminals, you touch one of theirs, they're going to go hard. The fucking cops go harder than everybody. So, um, they basically had like a witch hunt that summer, man. It was like an LSD witch hunt. Cause so the dominoes start just pop, 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 pop. Yeah. Right, they were right trying to, to find, yeah. Like where the fuck is this shit coming from? And also like everybody knew my name. Everybody knew Seth. Right. Because, you know, now Seth is more common because you got like Seth Rogen or, you know, Seth McFarlane. So there's like some famous people named Seth. But back then, like, dude, like 91, like nobody was fucking named Seth. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like my name stuck out. So everybody, you know, everybody's Seth, Seth. So they keep hearing Seth, Seth, Seth. They don't know my last name or anything, but everybody's hearing Seth. So because I I was kind of like this, uh, whatever, this infamous, you know, uh, you know, myth. You know, I don't know if you want to say legend or whatever. You know, I, I was just a dude that supplied all the fucking drugs to all these colleges. So, you know, a lot of people knew who I was. I'm sure you know? Colby will use a, a legend in the in the clickbait title he'll come up with. Yeah. It'll be legend. Yeah. You I mean, a lot of a lot of people. The you infamous know. legend. Yeah. Seth. You know, it's underground, you know, underground legends. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, I'm not like I'm not mainstream celebrity or nothing. You know, I was always I've always been more notorious and infamous. So, um. They start hearing my name and then they got this guy, Dave Crago, you know, so like during their investigation. So he ends up actually setting up another friend of mine, this guy named Chris, that was actually getting shit right from me. You know, he set him up in a, a you know, a deal with like a DEA, like a narc. And um, then it was like that was like the state case. And then. They pulled me into the state case. Right. Like they try to set up a deal like. The cop got a certain amount, like 10 sheets, but he wanted 20 more and he wouldn't give the money, you know, until he got these other sheets. And, and like the dude, Dave, I mean, whatever. I mean, he, he was an informant, but I mean, he was basically a pussy dude. And then the other dude, Chris, I mean, he was like, you know, a lot of the dudes, I mean, they're just like, I was always a dude, like if there was a problem, like I was a dude that they would call. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because whatever, I, I not to say I'm not a tough guy, but you know, I mean, I'll fight. I don't whatever. You know, I've but these are fights. all middle class, soft white kids. Yeah. Right? So, uh, so basically, like, it's not even my deal, but they call me to come handle it because the dude's Chris. He's like, man, I got this problem. Whatever. So, I fucking roll down there with like a couple other dudes, and I don't even know. It's it's a fucking sting. It's like a sting that they set for Chris Miller. They didn't even set the sting for me, but fucking. Chris fucking calls me and I get drawn into the fucking sting. So boom. And then they're like, Oh, we got fucking Seth. Right. You know, like who yeah, they were trying to get to you. They, they, but they had no idea. It's just, it was like it. a fluke thing, you know? And, um, and like I say, still, I didn't give anybody any drugs and I didn't take any money. That doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. Cause that, that that's at the time though. I thought I was, I was yeah. like, you know, so look, so it's state. So I get arrested on state. And so they they take me back to the station and fucking like the DE agents there and they're like oh, blah blah I'm like man I don't got nothing to say to you man I'm like man fuck you talk to my lawyer and they're like well, your lawyer's gonna want to suck our dick you don't know how much trouble you're in blah 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 you know we know everything's coming from you blah 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 and then then another fucked up thing happened because uh, I had this one kid was holding like 120 sheets for me and so they found about out about him through Chris. 
And um, so then they go right and they get that, right? And then I'm like, oh, fuck. So then they got all my fucking product too. So now, because before they had like, they had like 10 sheets. All right. You know, it would have been a state. Then they go and seize you. These guys give them the information. They go and get another 120 sheets. Now, so now they got like 130 fucking sheets. So now they're fucking, it was like the biggest LSD bus in Fairfax County ever. Right. You know? So, uh, yeah, and so then it's state, you know, whatever. I get my parents bail me out, and um, the feds come in at that time. Yeah, the feds. So this is like this is like early July, and um, you know, yeah, I people hire won't, people. Don't realize that you know, like the, the the state will grab you for something, and then sometimes they don't have enough to prosecute you, so they'll give it to the feds because the feds have even a lower bar yeah, as far as prosecution, right? right? And then even even then, you can sit there and think. Oh, they don't have anything. They never. They don't have me on tape. They don't have me on this. They don't have me on that. They don't have any product that, that I got. So they got nothing yeah. except because that's what, what, what that's ends what up I was is, thinking. That's right, what but what I was ends thinking. up happening in the feds is doesn't matter. They'll it's put just four, what people say. Right? They'll put four people on the stand that say they they bought from you and you're done. It's over. Yeah. You're like they got no money. They got no tapes. They got nothing on me. They got happened to have four guys that say I did it. Boom. You're looking at thirty years. Yeah, because so I was thinking at that time because I was even like. I was like, boom, I didn't, I didn't sell any cop anything. Right. I didn't take any money from any cop. You know, I got, I got hooked into the sting or whatever, and I got arrested, but I didn't sell anybody anything. And then the, even the other 120 sheets, it wasn't so, I mean, it was mine, but it was at somebody else's house. Right. You were watching too much Law & Order. None you know what matters. I'm saying? So I, I was like, man, I'm, I'm like, I'm good. So, uh, you know, I hired a state lawyer, you know, whatever, paid him with like, I paid him like 10 grand cash, drug money. And he even, the stupid lawyer even asked me, you know, his name was uh, Michael Rieger. And uh, he was like, I hope this is not drug money. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I was like, dude, I'm fucking like, I'm like fucking 20. I just gave you 10 grand cash, dude. Yeah. And you're like, I hope this is a drug. And I was arrested. For the biggest LSD bust in fucking right. Fairfax County. No, that's my dude. part time. I've been saving that on my part time job just to give to you. Yeah. And I just came. I'm like, boom, here, 10 grand, dude. Like I walked right into his office. It was in an envelope. And he was like, I mean, it was it's just like so comical. These dudes like to save their ass like the shit. They'll say, I'm like, yeah, dude, where you think it's from, man? You know, like I didn't even lie to the dude. I didn't even try to lie. I just looked at him like, come on, dude. Are you serious? So uh, so I got the state case. But, like, they're investigating the whole time. So, like, as soon as I get the state case, dude, it's like, it's like nobody wants to talk to me because the fucking DEA is going around talking to everybody. So, right. it's like, so I got, until I got, you know, uh, the federal case, it's, it's about maybe like a month and a half, dude. And it was, like, crazy because, like, I don't know who I can talk to. And, like, also, I have, like, a load of weed at this time. I'm trying to fucking move. I'm trying to get more money, Right. I had I didn't have that much, but I probably had about forty pounds. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, fuck, dude, because like it's like every other day, it's like cause I could tell, like, I'm calling people, what is it? Some dudes owe me money, and like dudes are just like dodging me, like they don't want to talk to me. And cause it, you know, back then I, I knew anyhow, like when somebody gets busted, it's like they're hot. Yeah, yeah. They're, so yeah. nobody wants to fuck with them. But see, so it was that, but at the same time, it was the investigation behind the scenes and the DEA. So I don't know who's giving information, who's not giving information. You know, they're like going to the chicks. They're going to like people's girlfriends. They're going to like my girlfriends. They're going to fucking everybody. The feds don't fuck around. And they're going to all these little fucking rich kids. And they're threatening, like, give information on Seth or you're going to jail for 10 to life. So, you know, like I say, I, I, for a long time, I had, I had a big thing when I was first locked up where I was like, oh, fuck snitches, all this. But, you know, whatever. I mean, what did I expect them to do? It was my fault for putting those people in that position. 
You know, that's how I look at it now. Right. But uh, that's actually how I look at it. Actually, when I hit the halfway house, I actually called like five of my co-defendants that all cooperated against me and apologized for putting them in a position where they had to. I said, because the truth is I was smarter than that. And I knew better than to put you in that position. And, you know, the idea that they were going to hold up was insane. That's comical. It's, I mean, they got the fucking, the fucking mafioso killers. They don't even fucking hold it. Right. it that, that whole thing, like, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I know some super thorough dudes that I was in prison with, and I know some super thorough dudes that, like, you know, were in Pelican Bay and walk, like, level four yards, and, like, still to this day, they're, like, fucking... Yeah, snitches like, and fuck them guys, and I, they would never... But I, I always but, tell them, I'm like, dude, if and, you're in the life, if you're in the life, or you're in prison... And you want to hold those values and that attitude cool. But, dude, if you're like you're trying to live a normal life, you know, and like and there's still some of my buddies that are like, I can I can walk, I can walk in the U.S. I'm like, OK, dude, whatever. That ain't, is that going to help you out here? I was going to say, don't commit crimes. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, then you get to do 30 years. Yeah. Fuck. No, that. I see. I, I see like my whole mindset. You know, life is about change. Life is, life is about evolving. So I see, you know, I put people in bad positions and whatever they did, what they were going to do anyhow. So, you know, but um. Yeah, so I'm having like this month and a half thing where like then my lawyer, he's like, oh, it's going federal. So we got to hire a federal lawyer. <laughs> so then I had to give me like five more grand and pay this federal lawyer five, five Only grand. five grand? That at, you first, got- at first, okay. at first, at first. Okay. So just that, that was like just the retainer. So uh, paid him cash. He didn't even ask me if it was drug money. He just took it. Right. <laughs> you know, he just took it. He was like just happy, I guess, to get it. So... um yeah, so then this fucking shit goes federal, right? And I'm just like, fuck, man. So then I got to go through the whole fucking arrest process, get bailed out, all that fucking shit again. And um, and still at this time, I, I'm not really sure like what I'm really looking at because I'm not really I'm not like up on the mandatory minimums. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm not up on the federal you, sentencing guidelines. You don't have any idea. Like, are you thinking three years, five years? Are you? What do you hear? I mean, you, you're hearing. Uh, yeah, anything? I'm thinking maybe like I'm thinking like maybe three to five years. Even the fucking federal lawyer I, I hired, right? He's telling me, he's like, "Oh, you're a good kid from a good family." He's like, still, you know, he has that that '80s mentality, right? You know, like he's thinking like before they changed the laws in like '88 or whenever they went in effect, '88 yeah. or '89. So 89, he's thinking, he's like, "Oh, maybe you might get like eight to ten years at the most." And so, but even I, I was like, man, fuck that. I was like, I'm not doing eight to 10 years. And, um, you know, so like I said, I basically, uh, I had, I had some product, I had money that I was trying to collect, you know, I, I, I had the weed that I was selling, you know, while all this shit is going on, you know, even though I'm having to be careful who I'm selling it with, you know, I'm trying to fuck with people that, you know, the DEA doesn't know about or that they haven't talked to or whatever. Cause you know, I did fuck with a lot of different people. So, um, I'm getting my money up, and so then uh, basically I come up with this plan, you know, like my escape plan, because I'm like, I'm like, because basically like my, my lawyers tell me, they're like, they're like you, you know, eventually, you know, once they start talking to pros- prosecutors, you know, they're like, you're looking at 20 to life. I'm like, 20 to life? I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, are you serious? 20 to life? I, w- I was like flabbergasted, and then they were like, whoa. You know, you might get like, uh, you could probably get like whatever, like four to six years, you know, if, if you, uh, you know, bust, bring some of your contacts here, you know, like they right. wanted me to, they wanted me to bring some people from San Francisco, like some of my deadhead friends, you know, they want me to bring in yeah, on like big buys. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they wanted me to set them up, and I was like, I was like, man, I don't know about that. So um, that was like how they presented my choices. They were like, oh, you can do twenty to life, yeah, or, or you this. fucking can bust these motherfuckers, cooperate, yeah, and get less time. Yeah, and I was like, or you can I'll, go to trial, lose, and definitely yeah. get life. Yeah, but but I was even like, I, I I was even fucked up. Like, you want me to cooperate, and I'm still gonna get time? Yeah, I was like, what are you fucking? Like, I mean, I thought when people cooperate, like, they get off. Like, they don't even go to prison. So they were like, no, it's not like that, whatever. So um, I formed this other plan, right? I was like, man, you know, because I was on a bail. I was like, man, I'm going to take the fuck off. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to fucking get the fuck out of here. Fuck these motherfuckers, right? And like I say, I, I, I had some money. So, um, you know, I was always a big sports fan. Right. And, you know, back then it was all newspapers, so... Like, we would get the Washington Post every day. So when you get the Washington Post, you know, and you go, like, I would go right to the sports section. But the section right before the sports section is the metro section. And so I remember, like, you know, over the last couple of years of my teenage years, I would see, like, headlines, like, in the metro section. Like, you know, so-and-so, this person, like, commits suicide at, you know, Great Falls, you know, jumping into the Potomac River. So that kind of always stuck in my mind for some reason. So I was thinking, I was like, man... I was like, how can I just like disappear and make Seth Ferrante disappear? So there's like no Seth Ferrante. There's like no case. So I came up with this. I devised this plan. I'm like, I'm going to fake my suicide on the banks of the Potomac at Great Falls National Park. I'm going to make it seem like I jump in the river and the area where I was going to jump in where everybody committed suicide. It's known as like class five rapids, you know, because the water is like crazy and there's rocks. So, you know, they got like professional kayakers go there, but you know, only like the, the super most craziest professional ones. So I was like, man, I'm going to stage my suicide you of know, course. in this area. I'm going to jump. Everybody, everybody, that's, that's the, everybody's go-to move. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, I'm going to jump in the fucking water. So, uh, I came up with all this fucking big plan. And then, too, because I had another problem, you know, because, uh, you know, my parents had put their house up for okay. bail, right? So so then I talked to the lawyers, right? So I told the lawyers, you know, because I was like, uh, I, I didn't bring it up, but I was like, you know, I started pursuing the cooperation thing. I was like, well, what happens if I say I'm going to cooperate? They're like, will you plead guilty? And then they're going to release you on a personal recognizance bond. They released the lien against the your parents' house, and it's no longer the collateral. And I was like, once they said that, I already had this suicide plan, but you know, I didn't want to. I didn't have enough money to cover, you know, because I don't. It was like I think they put up seventy five grand or something, so I didn't have enough money to cover that for my parents. So I didn't even want to fuck my parents, right? So then the lawyers, you know, when I asked them about the cooperation, and they told me about this, I was like, they said PR. I was like, PR bond. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Right. And they were like, well, you know, they're going to release you on your own recognizance. I'm like, all I got to do is like tell them I'm going to plead guilty and I'm going to cooperate. All right. And they were like, yeah. So I was like, okay. I was like, set it up. Right. So I fucking signed the paperwork. They fucking went to the courthouse, pled guilty. They fucking cut me loose. And then they told me like, I'm going to have to do these fucking debriefings. All right. Right. But I was already planned. I already had everything planned. Like I'm, I was fucking gone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I went. And they did like all this fucking transpired, like from the time I signed the paperwork till when I fled. I mean, it was only fucking like a couple days, right? And uh, so I took the fuck off, right? I faked my suicide. I took off. You know, I got rid of the, rid of the rest of the weed I had, and I, I took off to California. And um, like for real, dude. Like I thought. I mean, because I just went. I was like on a nine month high, like where I was on top of the world, and then like 
everything fucking crashed. So then I was like fucked up. And then like, I came up with this plan and I executed it. And then I was, I was like on top of the world. I was like, man, I was like, I'm that fucking dude. Like, fuck these motherfuckers, right? Like, you know, I felt like I got my fucking swagger back or whatever. Cause it, like when they, when I got busted and all that shit, like, dude, my fucking moxie, my swag was just like gone. I was like at the lowest point. But you, you'd also thought that you pulled off the, the faking the suicide, right? Cause didn't you, wasn't there something in the newspaper or something about you committing suicide and, yeah, like, so, so you thought you you thought it was a lock. Yeah, right? so 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 I go to LA. I fly to LA and I'm I'm actually I'm staying on uh Point Magoo military base. So I know this girl, her dad's like the XO. This uh girl named Nancy. So she was like an old girlfriend. So I went out there and I'm staying on the base and uh you know Point Magoo's a little bit up from LA, but I was having her drive me down to LA every day cuz you know back then they had like the big newsstands you know, like on every corner with like all the newspapers from different places and all the magazines, you know, you don't see that as much today, sometimes in the big cities, but not really with all the newspapers from the different cities. So I was going to get the Washington Post, like every couple of days, I would go to the Washington Post. So the first time I went and I saw it said, uh, you know, Fairfax, Fairfax LSD kingpin commit suicide. And I fucking saw, I was like, fuck yeah, I got these motherfuckers. Because I was thinking like, boom, now seven years, like Seth, note Seth Ferrante, my parents can have me declared legally dead in seven years. Right. You know what I'm saying? And no bodies found or whatever. They don't know what the fuck is up. And my body, you know, I figured my body was going to float out to the fucking Atlantic Ocean, you know? So I keep going back and I'm fucking like, I'm on top of the world again. I'm like, yeah, I'm the fucking smartest motherfucking outlaw. I can out smart the fucking feds these motherfuckers can't fuck with me and i'm like 22 so i'm like fucking you know you know when you're 20 yeah, it's yeah. all like that false bravado yeah, you, you think know? you're living in a movie or something yeah, yeah dude like i was i like i was like like you know catch me if you can wasn't even out out then but you know i thought i was catch me if you can you know but uh you know i just didn't know the name of the title of the movie but i thought i was that dude so uh i keep going down and i'm reading the papers because i'm like you know a couple of my uh, co-defense are going to trial. You know, everybody else pleads guilty. You know, out of everybody, like two dudes ended up uh, going to trial. Everybody else, like six other dudes ended up pleading guilty. So I'm reading all this in the papers. And then it was like probably like two weeks after I go back down and um, like I'm still on my fucking high, dude. And I get the fucking paper and I open up to the metro section, dude. And I was just fucking crushed because it said... Uh, it was like fucking prosecutors declare uh, LS, Fairfax County LSD Kings pen suicide a hoax. And I saw the headline. I was like, what? Like all my planning, everything, dude. I was like, what the fuck? I'm not dead. So I start reading the article, right? And it's like they said the, the U.S. park rangers, you know, dragged the river for two weeks and they, they didn't find a body. And um, I was like reading it more. And then like it went on to say like, you know, you know, where, you know, I allegedly went in, you know, there's like a, a dam like after that. So, I mean, I was like, so fuck, you wouldn't, it wouldn't have been washed out to sea. It would have been stuck in this one area and they yeah, would have found the body. Dude, I like seriously fucked up, yeah. man. I fucking staged, <laughs> I staged my though. suicide. It was a good two weeks. Yeah. So I, I staged a suicide on the wrong side of the dam. So that's, I mean, <laughs> I had a dime. So look, I thought it was smart as fuck. And I mean, really, in a way you think, I mean, I did. I, I was real innovative and I came up with this fucking crazy idea and I almost pulled it off. Just that one little well, fucking well, detail, man. Next time. Next time, you know. So that's how, uh, yeah, so that's how that whole shit transpired. So then, 
Then they made me for some ungodly reason. These fucking and I, and I know why now. I learned later at the time I had no fucking clue. So I learned later because when I was in prison, I did all these freedom information acts, you know, on all my case and everything. Yeah, you know, because I was a uh, you know I was a, a megalomaniac researcher like that. So you might know about stuff like that. <laughs> me too. Me so, too. Uh, so what I pieced together after the fact. So what happened was there was this dude named uh, Henry Hudson. He was like the assistant prosecutor, like the, you know, the, the assistant, pro, yeah, he was assistant U.S. attorney yeah. named Henry Hudson, like uh, on, on my case at the time in the Eastern District of Virginia. So all of a sudden, right after my case, this dude transfers to the Eastern District U.S. Marshal's office, and he's <laughs> the head of the U.S. Marshal's office. And so I guess like you know, he felt like I put a black mark on his record or, you know, like I made them look bad or I outsmarted them. Was he, he was your AUSA? He was your... He wasn't US? the prosecutor on my case. My prosecutor on my case was this chick named Christine Wright. He was like the, he was like the assistant U.S. attorney. Oh, okay. So he was like oh, the yeah, second yeah, okay. highest dude okay, in the sorry, office. Sorry, never mind. Yeah. yeah, so... Uh, so she was underneath him and your case was underneath his caseload. So, yeah, okay. so this dude, he goes from second in charge of the U.S. attorney's office to... US Number Marshals. one guy in the U.S. Marshals in the Eastern District of Virginia. And um, this dude makes me a top 15 U.S. Marshals list, I guess, out of revenge factor or he's pissed off or I'm the black mark on his record and he has higher aspirations. Right. You know, so, um, yeah, so, I mean, I had no clue. So, so, so for two years, like, I'm prancing around the fucking U.S. Like, uh, eventually I started selling weed and uh, not LSD, but I started running weed from Dallas, Texas up to St. Louis. And I'm just like carrying on, you know, war on drugs. I'm still a drug dealer. Like, you know, really in, in retrospect, when I look at it, I was really, really, really stupid. I mean, I'm trying to fucking be the biggest drug dealer I can as a fugitive at the height of the war on drugs. So, no. you know, but I mean, retrospect age, you get some clarity. So, uh, you know, at the time, you know, I got blinders on, whatever. I thought I was a cool guy. So, uh, so this dude, so I'm actually U.S. Marshals, fucking top 15, most wanted for fucking the whole two years. I'm a fugitive. And like, I have no fucking clue. Cause even when I was a fugitive, like I would watch all the shows. I watched like America's most wanted. Like I'm doing research, dude. I'm like a researcher. That's what right. I do. You know, like when I do something, like I research it. Right. So. I'm watching America's Most Wanted. I'm watching fucking like Unsolved Mysteries. I'm watching all that shit because I'm figuring out like how do they catch these motherfuckers? And so a lot of times like I'm seeing shit like the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. It's taking like three months to match up his prints. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, fuck, dude. Like I'm low profile. I don't have any murders. I'm not, I never even beat nobody up. You know what I'm saying? I'm right. like, it's going to take them forever to match up my prints because I'm, you know, I feel like I'm not a high priority. But, you know... Lo and behold, I had no fucking idea that I'm fucking a federal U.S. Marshal's top 15 most wanted fucking fugitive. So, uh, and, and like I say, this dude, Henry Hudson, he, he did the paperwork, you know, because later on when I got caught, you know, one of the U.S. Marshals told me, like, he's looking at my jacket, you know, and he's, and he's looking at me. And I look like when I got caught, I look like a little college kid. And he's like, he's like, who did you piss off? All right. You know what I'm saying? Because there's like anybody else on the top 15 most wanted list is like violent, has guns, murders, whatever. Yeah, they're dangerous fugitives and you're selling a product you can't even OD on. I'm selling fucking hippie drugs. Right. 
So whatever. So, um, you know, but I came to find out this all later. So, you know, but that whole time, really, when I'm a fugitive, I was selling weed. Um, I was running weed. Eventually, like in L.A., my money ran out and uh, that girl got sick of me living in her parents' house. So, you know, I had to fucking roll out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she didn't want to. She didn't, her parents didn't know I was a fugitive, but she knew. So after about six months, she was kind of like, uh, dude, you got to like. The novelty's worn yeah. off. She was like, yeah, it was cool seeing you again and having some sex and shit. But now you got to bounce, motherfucker, because there's no, this relationship's not lasting. There's no future. You're a fucking fugitive fucking drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? At, at the height of the war on drugs, she's like, she saw no future. But like, <laughs> you're going to have my kids when I go to prison. I don't know. But uh, so. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, she told me kick rocks. I go to Dallas, Texas. I hook up with Mexican Eddie. Right. You know, my fucking brick pot dealer. You, and, got, a fake, um, you got fake IDs. And oh, stuff I got right tons now. of fake IDs. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's a whole nother story. That'll take another half hour to tell about the fake right. IDs. But I got a whole fucking bunch of fake IDs that I got through researching through books. I learned how to do it. And, um, I meet some guys and they're from St. Louis, you know, and I'm, I'm selling drugs, you know, weed and it in Texas at Harrigan's restaurants, these other restaurants. And one of the guys one time, he goes to St. Louis. So I'm like, can you sell some weed? And so I go up, I take 20 pounds. And like over that next year to 18 months, I make like, I have like my, my second little fucking marijuana empire. And, um, then eventually, uh, I get arrested for like a quarter pound of weed with the same guy who took me up there, but it was in his truck. So he claims it. He actually was selling weed for me, but it was my weed. You guys um, got pulled over or something? What? No, how? we were in the back of a Burger King parking lot. Oh, that's and, right. Yeah, the Burger King parking lot had just got robbed like two weeks before. I just dropped off like three pounds. We were just waiting for the money and smoking a joint. Cops pull up. Dumb luck. And uh, I didn't even know he had the quarter pound in the truck, but you know, he did the right thing. He claimed it. He said it was his, but they still arrested me and took me in and matched my prints, you know, released me. And then I came back and bailed him out, got his car out of the impound, you know, and got my money for the three pounds. And um, yeah, but then in three days, they match up my fucking prints. So then the fucking, the fucking Midwest fucking fugitive task force is looking for me. They go to his house first because they got his real name. He starts driving him around St. Louis to all the people I fucking sell weed to. And then eventually they found some dude that I had just fucking loaded up, threatened to give him 10 years to life, and he brought him right to my hotel. Boom. Extradited back to Virginia. Sentenced to uh, 25 years, 304 months. Did you, you didn't, I mean, you, you just pled guilty to 25 I'd years? I'd already pled. I had already pled. I oh, pled before I left. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I pled because I pled to the 20 to life. And told him I would cooperate. <laughs> because you were never going to be there for the sentencing. Because I was going to be dead. Right, right. Okay. But I wasn't dead. My whole plan backfired. So then when I came, they held me to that plea. And they fucking, and they, obviously they didn't give me any credit for any cooperation. And they enhanced me five years for uh, 60 months for um, taking off, of, you know, obstruction of justice and failure to appear. Right. So 25 years. Yeah. Did you... Did, do a 2255? Did you do anything? I did you, everything, man. Oh, okay. You went through all the, the whole Fuck process it. of trying to... Lost everything. Yeah. You yeah. Know, back, dude, back then in the 90s, you couldn't get you couldn't get any play for anything. Only if you went to trial, you could have went to play. So I would say that to any of your listeners. Really? I mean, you got two choices when you get busted, man. Either fucking cooperate fucking fully and fucking get as little time as you can. If you're not going to do that, 
Go to trial, man. That's that's the only way you're going to retain your rights. So, you know, yeah. like I'm saying, you know, uh, don't try to do anything halfway. Don't try to outsmart the motherfuckers like I did. You're just going to get fucked. Yeah. Um, fuck. 25 years, bro. What the fuck? And then I, I heard on the uh, on the other podcast where you're talking about the you were talking about, um, you know, being uh, the, the different prisons and the. Uh, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, and you mentioned Coleman and, and uh, Whitey Bulger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I was in the medium there yeah. at, at, at uh, Coleman. I used to write Whitey Bulger. Yeah, yeah, you told me, you told me that. Um, Dude, he has the most awful handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking, you can barely read his writing, dude. It's like... He was also like 100. He was, how was he, like 70-something? You have something? like a fucking magnifying glass, dude. I sent him the Rolling Stone article about my case. It came out in 97 when I was in when I was in FCI Beckley. And he wrote me a whole fucking letter on the Rolling Stone, my Rolling Stone article. Like, I still got that. I don't know. I think I might put it up on eBay one say, day. I was going to say, any, any letters from him would be worth uh, something. Let's see if somebody give me, like, I'll start the bidding at 10000 <laughs> Um. All right, so uh, we're going to do another podcast about just about what you're doing now because when you went to prison, you start writing, and and that's you know, and yeah. although I mean, although the, the the true crime story is cool, you know, to me, I mean, that's like like you're at a spot now in your career where I'd love to be in a few years from now, you know. Yeah. Um, no, the whole the whole prison. I mean, it was a lot of time I had to do, but whatever. I got three college degrees. I got a master's degree. I started writing books, and every day in prison, my thing was. What can I do today for when I get out? So, I mean, everything I've done, it's, it's, it was all planned, dude. I mean, I'm very methodical. Yeah. You know how I do stuff. I do everything one step at a time. You know, I research. I'm not trying to jump from one to ten. You know, I don't mind taking the steps. I'm very methodical. So prison, even though I had to do 21 years, I was very methodical in that 21 years. And I did everything that I needed to do to put me in the position where I am now. You know, I started writing true crime stories when I was in prison. Uh, I didn't write any fiction stories. Like I've heard your, your how you started writing it's like some of the gangster guys' stories and and uh, and some uh, some were what fiction kind of fiction started no, that way. No, everything was pretty much nonfiction. Non-fiction? My first book, okay. Prison Stories, was true, but I wrote it as fiction because you know I didn't want to be like a snitch in right. prison. Right, and yeah. everybody's so they're always so worried about. Oh, what if I tell you something that I could get? Well, then well, let's not talk about that. Or we'll change yeah. the names, but. So yeah, I, I started doing that. I was say, it was the same thing. Like I I heard your interview before. So it's basically like, look, I'm in prison, and what when I was in prison, I saw all the other guys. They're learning to play an instrument. They're taking horticulture classes, uh, or they're 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 playing softball. And it's like you're spending ten years of your life, or fifteen years, and you're an amazing you know handball player. But when you but you came in with no education. You've only sold drugs. You know, you're an amazing handball player when you get out, but you're you're in your 50s now. The fuck mm. are you going to do when you get out of prison? None of and the guys that were taking horticulture are only concerned about taking it cuz they plan on buying burning a bunch of houses and growing marijuana. And the guys that are taking the stuff as far as like um I forget what they called that class where it was basically about how to run a restaurant. So, highest failure rate out there get a restaurant. So what you want to do is you want to put a guy who has no money in a situation where he can open a restaurant and fail or real estate or real estate or something. It's like, you don't have any experience. You have no way to do this. So my point is to me, I thought, what can I do in here? And the one you can't really work, but the one thing they, they will let you do is they will let you write. 
They will let you publish books. They will let you write stories. You can write for magazines and you can make money that way. You can't run a business, but they can't stop you from doing. That's the one thing they will let you do. And there were so many amazing stories. I would hear guys tell stories. I heard for years, I'd listen to stories and I think, how is that not a movie? How has no one written your story? And they can't write their own stories because you don't see yourself the way you really are. So that's when I came in. I wrote my own story and then I started writing other guys' stories. And, you know, I hope, I figured someday I'll get out of prison. I'll have all these stories and I'll try and get them turned into documentaries or movies. IP. IP. I started collecting IP. And so, but you, you know, but you're way ahead of where I am. I just like to be where you're at at some point in the future. That's my, like my goal. That's like, that's my dream. That's what I laid in bed at night in my bunk and thought, well, if I get out, I could do this and I could do this and I do this. And I had a whole building block in my head, you know, planned. You got well, that's how you do it. You got to manifest it. You got to talk about it. You got to put it out there. You got to make it reality. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, you know, um, like moving forward, positivity and just saying what I'm going to do and then doing it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Like I don't, like even in prison, prison is a very negative place, right? And when I first started writing, you know, even the guards, the other prisoners, they'd be like, you know, you can't do that. They'd always told me, like, I can't do this. And like, I would read the policy and I'd be like, man, I can do this. Yeah. You know, so, and so even out here, I'm like, I will not, I cannot stand negativity. Anybody that is like negative or like second guesses me what I'm trying to do. And like, like I say, sometimes like, you know, I'm, I'm doing these documentaries now. You know, I got White Boy on Netflix. And, you know, some people, that might be like the pinnacle. But to me, it's just it's just like, like another ladder on the rung. You know, I, t- I want to be the, Quint- the next Quentin Tarantino. I want to do, you know, scripted, you know, fiction, fictional, like drug, you know, crime movies. You know, sometimes maybe based on a real event. But, you know, like, dude, like, I want to do like $100 million budget movies. Right. You know, like I'm not fucking around. Like I'm, I'm already looking right now from do this documentary stuff. I'm looking to jump to like the three to five million dollar indie flick. And then, you know, then I'm looking to jump to like a 20 million, you know, 50, 60. And then, you know, I want to do like a fucking Marvel movie. Right. I want to do the Purple Man. I don't know if you know who the Purple Man <laughs> is. Who's that? He's a, he's this criminal character. He's like in a lot of Spider-Man comic books, but he's like he wears like a gangster suit and he's all purple and he has like these. uh I don't even know how to say it. It's like, is it called fur, fur gnomes or something? So it's like he can emit from his body. Pheromones. 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 So he can permit, he can emit those from his body and make you do what he says. So that's like his superpower, but he's like a villain. I had an ex-girlfriend like that. Yeah. A lot. I think a lot of women are like that. (laughs) Especially on men. But uh, so, but he's like a super villain. So I want to do like the Purple Man movie. You know, I also want to do, uh, I want to remake The Princess Bride. Right. Oh, nice. Nice. You know I saying? love that. You guys don't even know what The Princess Bride I want to remake The Princess Bride. So sad, bro. With like, with, with good CGI. Nice. You know, like a Tolkienistic version of The Princess Bride, but keep the humor and the sweetness. And then uh, another movie I want to remake. I want to remake... Uh, you know, harder they come. You know, the, the the classic or harder they fall. The classic Jamaican movie. Okay. Yeah. So it's like from 1971. You know, it's about uh, you know Jimmy Cliffs in it. So he's about like a, a, a up and coming reggae, you know, dance hall guy, but like he's involved in crime. So I want to remake that. Just like think how they remade Scarface, right? So I want to remake uh, you know, that old Jamaican movie, except you know, set it in like you know the hip hop era. 
you know, and have a guy who's like, he's trying to be a rapper, but he's involved in crime and he ends up, you know, going to jail for being a crime. Like a lot of the stories we, uh, you know, heard about in federal prison. But um, yeah, my whole thing, man, why I started writing, because I, I kind of looked at it. I started taking college classes and I was like, when you were in prison. Yeah, yeah, when I which was in is, prison. Which is difficult, by the way. Like, everybody thinks that, oh, yeah, they offer this. They offer, Listen, man, you basically, you're doing everything yourself. There's, yeah. They might have some person who's supposed to help you, but they're half-assed about yeah. it. So it's and plus, basically all on you. And plus, when I first went in, they had the Pell Grants, right? But by 96, they, they abolished yeah. the Pell Grants, so they didn't even fund the college courses. So my parents paid for all my college courses. I did all my shit correspondence. So I got the AA degree from Penn State. I got the BA from bachelor, or from uh, University of Iowa. And actually, that, that was one of my best moves when I got in that program because University of Iowa is like famous for this a writing program. You know, you got to the writing program. You got to go there. You know, it's like on campus. But a lot of the instructors that I was doing correspondence courses through were the instructors from that famous writing course, you know, doing like extra work for extra money. Right. And so I, I had the benefit of these instructors and I was taking all writing heavy because in there you can go like a business administrative route or you can go like a humanities route. You know, and if you go like a humanities liberal arts, it's like a lot of writing, creative writing, journalism, you know, reading a lot of books and writing papers. And, um, Eventually, I got my master's degree. I got my master's degree from uh, University of California. So, um, but during that whole time, that that's how I learned to write. You know, so it's not like I just started putting pen to paper or whatever. I like took college courses, you know, and I learned to write. I already was creative. You know, I, I was kind of creative, you know, my whole life. You know, I used to write poetry, play in bands, all that shit like that. You know, I was like dungeon master. Right. You know what I'm saying? Creating all these worlds and shit. <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. Like, they don't know. Yeah. They don't know what that means. Yeah. What a so, dungeon uh, master is. Dungeons and dragons. That was like the. Oh, yeah. no, wow. Listen, there's so many things. There's so many things that people, I'll say to 80s. somebody my age, and I'll always look over at Colby, and Colby's just like, he has no clue what I'm yeah. talking about. That's the 80s shit. The, it's it's good the 80s was a wonderful time. But pre-internet was, I think it was a better world, really. But, uh, you know, so the whole time I'm getting these degrees, I, I'm, I'm writing. So first I started writing. I, I, my first big success was actually writing prison basketball. So, you know, because like, like in there, dude, there's like these dudes. They're like phenomenal basketball players, yeah. dude. And, like, and like, like how you were talking about, like they spend all this time. They spend like 10, 15 years just playing basketball. But, you know, I mean, they can never be professional because when they get out, they're going to be too old. But like in there, dude, like these dudes are phenomenal basketball players. So I started writing about this one guy named Ron Jordan. He was from Harlem. He had like that Rucker Park game, dude. And this dude was built like a, a linebacker, right? He was maybe like 6'1", like 240. Right. But this dude could like slam dunk. He had like all the handles. He like embarrassed dudes. They, they call him Ron Jordan, the abuser, because he used to like abuse people. He would like do all the stuff, like fake somebody out, act like he's going to the bas basket and with the easy layup. But he would pull it back to let the dude guard him again. You know, because it, it was just like the, the, the man on man, like macho shit, dude, this dude. And he could dunk and he could shoot threes. This dude was scoring like 60 points a game. And everybody used to come out to the gym to see him. So that was like my first big success. I started writing about this dude and the other prison basketball players. And um, yeah, I was writing for this website called Hoops Hype, you know, which now they're, they're like on, I don't know, they're like, uh, I think USA Today or something bottom. So they're like this big, but that time they were just like this little uh, kind of hip hop, right. you know, uh, hip hop basketball website. And then I started writing for Slam, which is kind of like a hip hop basketball magazine. And then from there, I started doing the more gangster stories. I started writing for Don Diva and Feds. 
which are like they call like you know the the street the street bibles. Yeah, yeah they wouldn't even let, they wouldn't yeah. let those into the like those are prison. like the most popular magazines in yeah. prison, man. Like guys would get them sent in, they'd have the have the they alternate putting, covers, yeah, yeah new fake covers, covers like, yeah, yeah, fake covers to get like them you in. get one of those magazines in prison, like like dude, the line is like two hundred long. Yeah. Everybody wants to read it, you know. So um, I started writing for them, uh, Don Diva, Feds, and um, really I I, I I formed a journalism uh, career in prison because yeah. that was like the only thing I could do. I was like, what the fuck can I do? I was like, I can write, you know. So. Um, and then really my biggest break came, um, this is probably like early 2000s. I just started writing re really like around 99. So, uh, you know, at first I was just writing like in the prison, like I was doing prison sports newsletters, like that they post on the boards and yeah, stuff. Yeah. I, I was doing that. I did that for six years while I was taking the college classes. So then I started doing the Don Diva stuff and the prison basketball. And then um, there was this editor at Vice named Jesse Pearson. So this was like when Vice was just basically a magazine. They had a website, but they weren't huge like they are today. So this right. is like early 2000s. You know, so they're like this kind of low rent GQ. You know, they have this big thing. It's like do's and don'ts where they do like the fashion, like dress like this. And they make fun of people. They take pictures. So he had he was a big fan of my work from Don Diva. So he reached out to me, you know, and um, I started writing, dude. Dude, and they were paying me like, dude, they were paying me like $500 a month. Right. To write a column. I wrote a column, like 1,200 words called I'm Busted. And it was in every magazine for like fucking two or three years. $500. Like I was living like a yeah. king on yeah. 500 a month. 500 bucks in prison is a lot of fucking money. Fuck, dude. I was like, everybody thought I was like a millionaire. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so that was like my first big break because I started writing for that. And then uh, I kept for, I kept writing for Vice as they kept growing. And I, kept, I was like their prison guy. You know, I'll do like their prison. And then I got more into true crime. Then I started doing stuff for Penthouse. I started doing stuff for The Fix, War on Drugs stuff. And um, how the whole white boy thing came about is, uh, you know, I started writing him around 2005 because I, I started doing my Street Legends stuff. Like I had all this material from Don Diva. And Don Diva could only, it's a magazine, so they could only fit like so much. And I had all this extra material. And I like all the dudes, they kept coming back to me. They're like, dude, what about this picture? Or what about this? You want to use some of the stuff? So eventually, you know, like they were upset with me because everything was not in the magazine that they gave me. You know, so eventually I came up with my Street Legends series. I've published uh, Prison Stories 2005, Street Legends 2008. So... At the same time, um, I reach out to White Boy Rick because I'm in FCI Gilmer and Beckley, Beckley, FCI Beckley and FCI, FCI Gilmer in West Virginia. And there's all these Detroit dudes. So I'm hearing about this dude, White Boy Rick. Hold on. You know who White Boy Rick is? Okay. You guys saw the, the movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailers and stuff. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I start writing him because I want to put him in like my Street Legends book. Yeah. Right. And, and basically my street legends books are just like all these uh, African-American drug lords that are, are part of, uh, you know, the lyrical lore of hip hop. Right. You know, and gangster rap. I, I kind of uh, I just kind of romanticize and glorify it. And I make them into these Billy the Kid, you know, Jesse James yeah, yeah. type figures. Because, you know, I was writing I was writing for my peers in prison. And also I was a white guy writing about African-American dudes like in prison, like. You know, that doesn't happen. I mean, you've been yeah, in prison. Yeah. That's not like that's not like something normal, you no. know. And and the only reason I even had the juice to do that is because, you know, I had the long sentence. I, I'd been in a little bit. And, you know, the longer you're in, the more stripes you get, yeah, yeah. you know. So um, by the time I do this, you know, I'm like in 10 years. So, you know, I got I got a lot of stripes. And 
I played sports. I was I was a sports fanatic. I'm like really athletic. I would be like the only white dude like out there playing ball with all the black dudes. Like yeah. like I would I was like the dude like you know you go to the yard like you go to the yard at lunch. I'm playing ball. You go to the yard and recall. I'm playing ball. Yeah. You know I played like three hours straight. I didn't give a fuck. That was like how I did my time. Yeah. I I actually sat at a table in the library with five guys that were writing, or five black guys that were all writing um, urban novels. I was the only one writing true crime. But I, and I was the white guy at the room be, or at the table because I was the guy that you know, as racist as this is going to sound, it was it was basically you don't have Google, what you've got is a white guy. So they'd say, you know, I don't understand. How do you say that? Hey Cox. It was always Hey Cox. Hey Cox. And I'd be like, No, it's this. It's that. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, this. Yeah. So I mean, I was you know to sit at that table. Everybody thought I was like a you know like. You must be a cool guy to be sitting at the table with all those guys because the white the white guys and black guys very seldomly mix in person. You were just Google. Yeah, I was Google. Yeah, I had a I had a purpose. You were like that smart guy from the eighties that, that Google fucking yeah. made obsolete. Yeah, exactly. In prison, only in prison. Yeah, yeah but in prison like, they still here, need that guy. That guy who knows everything. Out here, I'm semi smart, but yeah. in prison, fucking super genius in prison because the iq is so low but anyway no that's what that's what i I tell people too right because look like since i've been out like dude i've been to Cannes, man i go to sundance and i'm around like dude these people they went to harvard and columbia and dude they just speak and i'm like i just want to be around them so i can learn to speak better because they're like so eloquent they use all these fucking big words and like like I, I feel like a brute around them, right? Yeah. But like in prison, I'm like, like you said, I'm like the super genius in fucking prison. And then I get out around all these fucking talented writers and filmmakers and people that went to all these Ivy League schools and come from all this money. And I just, I feel like a fucking brute, dude. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's it's fucking crazy. This this is like my 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 biggest fucking dilemma today, you know? Because a lot of people they're like, oh no, you're eloquent, you can talk. And I'm like, no, I don't talk like that. I'm a fucking. I talk like a brute. Right. I talk like an educated brute. Yeah, that's I, how yeah, I kind of talk. Among my about. friends on the outside, I'm like a, I, I'm practically a thug around these guys. And to me, it's like. As far as like masculinity, like I always say, like I'm I'm like a four or five on the masculinity scale from one to one. one oh, to yeah. Ten. There's some tough dudes right. in prison. But they in got prison, tough motherfuckers. Oh, in prison, yeah. I'm like a one, maybe yeah, a zero. Yeah, yeah. I might as well be wearing a dress when I'm in yeah, prison. Yeah, out yeah. here, I'm a five. Prison, yeah. I'm a zero. Practically, yeah. I'm, I'm this far from being a fucking punk in prison. I mean, that's how they look yeah. at you. Like, you're a soft white guy. You're you're harmless. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny how just everything changes out here. Yeah. So so, you know. So white white boy Rick, I started writing him, right? And like, I want to tell his story, right? But I want to like romance, romanticize it. I want to make it gangster. You know, I want to glorify it because that's what I'm doing in my Street Legend right. series. And that's, I'm hearing these, all this stuff about him. Like, who is this white kid that was running all these, you know, black organized crime in Detroit when he was like 16 or 17? And I kind of identify him with him too, you know, because we were both young white dudes. We both got a lot of time, you know, we were both involved in stuff as a teenager. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities, you know, so I'm writing him and we start writing and he starts telling me like this totally opposite story. You know how like he was in a foreman and, you know, the police prostituted him and buried him. And, and I, I didn't really get it at first. Cause I'm like, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't, I'm not writing about informants. Like my, my base is like the other prisoners, you know, and I'm in like yeah. medium security prisons. I'm like, these dudes ain't got to fucking, if I write some shit, they're going to be like, you're writing about a snitch, you know, or whatever. So it, it, it took me a couple years to kind of get my head around his story and, and, and how to write it. And like I say, it took me to get older and it took my writing to evolve and it probably took me going to a low. Yeah. 
where, you know, they don't carry it like the same, you know, because I did 12 years in the mediums and then I did nine years in the lows. So it was like this kind of evolution in my writing where, you know, I went from writing this hardcore death before dishonor shit to, uh, you know, more about the injustices of the drug war because I started seeing the bigger picture more, you know, as I got older and I started writing more. And, and like I say, also going to the low gave me more room to explore this stuff with not being considered this or be considered that. So, um, yeah, 2012, I wrote this story about his case for the fix, dude. And like the shit fucking went viral, dude. Like it was my first experience of having the prison basketball shit was pretty popular, but like this shit, like fucking went super fucking viral on the fix. This is a like drug war fucking site. Right. And, um, just brought a ton of attention to me, you know, and um, the whole time I was already thinking, you know, because I was writing books, uh, you know, from 2005 till I got in 2015, I wrote eight books. And um, then when I got out, I took two of those books and I divided it up, the chapters, you know, and, and put 12 out like digital books, you know, to make it like 20, even though it's like from the same material. And then I had a couple more. So I think I got like 24 books out right now. But once I started doing the books, you know, and I was kind of doing the journalism and I was like, man, really, I want, I want to do movies. I want to do visual stuff, you know, um, but it was just kind of, you know, learning it. And like when I took my master's degree, I took like a lot of film type courses, you know, at least reading the books as much right. as I could in there. And I, I did have a couple like they would let me send in some DVDs, you know, so I could watch different shit. But uh, really, like everything I was doing, man, was basically for gearing up, you know, so. You know, I even like, dude, I read a whole bunch of books, like, like books on like shots, like that explains all the different shots, like in narratives and stuff like that. And yeah, I just went crazy. So I was like, you know, reading because in there, that's all you got time to do yeah. is read, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you might as well educate yourself. I don't think, I don't think I read five books since I've been out in six years, but you know, um, yeah, so I kind of hit the ground running and, um, you know, I did more pieces on White Boy Rick's story for like Vice News and Vice and some other places. So, um, but still, when I first got out, though, I was just a journalist. I was working as a journalist. And then I met the dude, Sean Reck, the director of White Boy, and he had Transition Studios. He had just done this movie, A Murder in the Park. It was on Showtime. And I actually interviewed him for that, for that, for Vice. Right. And he found out about my backstory and we started talking. And at first we were going to do like this uh, prison expose, like on, on, on how all these sub industries are built around the prisons. Right. You know, like, like Keefe Coffee yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the hotels and how it's all kind of interconnected, you know, with the, the dude, like the senator brings the prisons there and it's all his friends, the businessmen who form all the businesses around the prison. So we were looking at something like that. And then we were talking and uh, I showed him some, it was like right when they announced like the white boy Rick movie with Matthew McConaughey. And I had shown him some of my articles. I go, did you hear about this? And he's like, yeah, I heard they're going to do that movie. And I'm like, you know, I know this dude. And I'm like, check out, here's these articles. You know, I had wrote like four or five articles, but, and he's like, what? He's like, he's from Cleveland. So he's like, yeah, I heard about this dude. You know, he's like our age. So he's like, I heard about this dude, man. And uh, then he was like, man, he was like, you got access to him. And I was like, yeah, he's like, I'm looking to do my next doc, man. Let's do this. You know, so it was just like lucky I made the right relationship at the right time when he was looking for something, you know, and it, there was a hype because of the White Boy Rick movie. Right. So it made him interested. And um, for that, he actually he'd actually, you know, told me like he came with a couple different proposals like, you know, let's do it like this. Let's do it like this, you know, trying to lessen, you know, maybe kind of my role or just kind of, you know, 
buy the idea or whatever. And, right. I, and I told him, you know, I knew how to tell a story, but I didn't really know how to make a film. So I told him, I said, look, man, I said, you know, I want, I want to be by your side. You know, I want you, you know, whatever, if you can give me something at the end, whatever, but you don't got to pay me nothing. Now I say, I want to, you know, keep by, I want you to mentor me. Also, I asked him that because this dude had cut his teeth doing like Crime Stoppers. He did like 200 Crime Stopper shows for all the networks. Yeah. And he had won like nine regional Emmys in Ohio for all his work on these 200 shows. So I knew dude was something special. I knew he knew what he was doing because when I walked in his office, he had nine fucking Emmys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, man. So I made the deal with him. I said, look, dude, I'm, I'm going to get you everything you need for this film. I'm going to get you all the access. I'm going to get you all the, the people you need to make this film. And I go, I just want you to... Uh, you know, involved me in the process, man. And, and he, he was very fucking cool about it. So like a lot of times we would do the interviews and I would be there. Sometimes I might watch the camera, sometimes not, but always at the end of the interview, when he was done, he would give me five minutes in the director's chair. So, you know, actually white boy. So I, I, I got a, a write a, a writer credit and a producer credit on that. And Sean Reck, an Emmy winning director, trained me how to be a director, you know, mentored me over that, like, you know, nine to 12 months that we did the shooting, you know, and then I worked with his editor, you know, and him as we edited it, you know, over, over like the next nine to 12 months. So that was like, uh, you know, so really, I mean, Sean Reck, I mean, he, he taught me a lot. And then also like, like Rick, man, Rick's, Rick's still my real good friend to this day. You know, Rick, a lot, there was a lot of interest in Rick. He had the Hollywood movie, man. Rick didn't have to, you know, give us our blessing or, or right. participate in that, in that white boy documentary. He did that uh, because of our relationship. Cause I told him, cause I said, look, dude, I said, I want to make films. I said, this dude got the money to make this film. And I go, first off, you know, our first goal was to get him out. Yeah. You know, and he had got this other guy out from a murder in the park. Right. So that was kind of like his track record, but that was like the first thing. But I said, I told Rick, I said, the second thing is I want to make films, motherfucker. I said, do this for me. Cause you know, he was kind of first, he was like, oh, who's this guy and his, his representation? Well, oh, we don't know about this guy. He only made this one film, who the fuck is he? But I told him, I said, look, I believe in this dude. I, I've seen his, you know, team, he can do it, you know? And I go, this is my entrance into the film world and what I want to do. And so like, I, I will always be indebted, you know, to Rick, especially, you know, for giving me that opportunity by giving his blessing to that. But also, you know, to Sean Rick for, right. for teaching me everything that he taught me. And it's on it's on Netflix right now. Is it playing yeah. on Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix. So it was right on. Now. Was it on before Discovery and then no, Netflix? No, it was on or Stars. It was on Stars for eighteen months. And, and now then, Netflix. Yeah, then went on Netflix, and it was crazy because when it first came out, it first came out probably like uh, you know almost three years ago. And um, when it first came out, I knew it was a good film, right? But this is like pre-pandemic. This is like uh, pre. Black Lives Matters exploding all over the uh, you know right. world internationally. You know, this is pre a lot of things, and I think when it first, I thought like everything that's happening now was going to happen when it first came out, man. Because I was like, man, this film is awesome, man. Sean Reck and his team, you know, I, I contributed to it, but you know, I'll give credit where credit is due. I mean, that was Sean Reck and his editor. You know, I was probably like the third most important person on that, or maybe the fourth. But uh, you know, I knew it was a good film. I knew it was powerful and it did. It helped to get Rick out, you know, not that it got Rick out by itself, but it helped. But, um, I thought everything that's happening now was going to happen then. But I think because the world, the way the world was, you know, people, you know, they didn't believe it or, you know, there was too many rabbit holes or they didn't believe in the level of corruption that we were showing and exposing, 
you know, and plus I think everybody was still kind of in the rat race of America, you know, capitalism, trying to make money. So, um, you know, so it had like a, you know, 18 month run on stars and, you know, it didn't really get a lot of recognition or turn a lot of heads. And then, you know, then like we, we signed the Netflix deal and, um, it went on Netflix, like right at the end of the pandemic, you know, like last April. And I think it might have something to do with like the tiger King effect maybe, but Man, it went on Netflix, dude, and it just fucking exploded. It was like it was brand fucking new, man. So the first two weeks it was on Netflix, it's like top 10 on Netflix. Not top 10 documentaries, like top 10 movies, series, everything for two weeks straight, right? New York Times did like a little fucking write-up on it. And uh, then, you know, like, like I say, then like they said like in April or May, like it had 20 million fucking views. Right. So it's crazy because that just, for me... It put a lot of wind in my sails because I had a bunch of different stuff I wanted to do that I'm working on now, but I didn't really have the money. Right. But it just kind of blew me up. And I always look at it like I look at it like sports. Like, all right, New England Patriots won the Super Bowl. Everybody knows Tom Brady's a man, but all those other free agents on that team are getting big contracts. Yeah. So like I was part of something that was has been extremely successful, you know, on Netflix and that a ton and it's it's like recognition, the the recognition value, dude. Like you could talk to anybody, you know, most people they know fucking white boy Rick and they know fucking white boy on Netflix. Right. You know, it gives that that recognition, like that name value. Where I do like I could just meet somebody on the plane and be like, Oh yeah, I did white boy on Netflix. And they'll be like, you know, they, they know have. it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh yeah, so now dude, I got a ton of shit, man. I'm I'm doing a uh I'm doing a cannabis documentary. The cannabis docuseries on Humboldt County called Tangled Roots that I just uh, I just premiered the teaser at uh, the Emerald Cup, which is like the World Series of Cannabis. Just last weekend, you know, I got on stage and got to talk about it. I had all the farmers with me. Um, I'm doing an LSD docu docu series that I'm gonna premiere the first episode of it in San Francisco on Bicycle Day. You know, that's like when Albert Hoffman, that's like when Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD and took it and discovered LSD. They call it Bicycle Day on April 19th. All right. So I'm doing it at this, uh, this thing in San Francisco. <clears throat> and then um, I also got this other docuseries I'm working on uh, about the mafia and heroin called Dope Men. And so I'm, I'm making arrangements, you know. I've kind of come up with this plan because all this stuff I do, it's, it's, it's kind of niche. It's kind of true crime. Um, it's really hard to get into film festivals. You know, I've been going to all the big film festivals. I've been to Cannes. I've been to Sundance. You know, I've been talking to all these people. And um, I'm kind of seeing, like, these target uh, market audiences, like the Emerald Cup or, like, an LSD-specific event or, like, a mafia-specific event. Right. Is These are almost like, like I, I think I can use these, like, my Sundance, you know, because, I mean, you know, maybe I could get a Sundance, maybe not, but, you know, Sundance is only once a year and all my stuff's going to be finished up you know, like in the next six to eight months. So I'm, I'm looking for ways, like how can I create the hype, you know, in, in the press and make enough noise, you know, to make the streamers notice, yeah, I got White Boy on Netflix, but it's not like I got a g- direct cook up to Netflix, you right. know? So you still got to, you got to make the noise. That's why they have the film festivals because, you know, they write about these things and that brings the attention of the Amazons, the Hulus, the Netflix. And really in today's game, it's not about going to the theater. It's not about going to DVD. It's about getting on these streamers, man. That's how, that's how you're going to make your money back and that, that's how you're going to keep working. And really... Right. Really, like anything in life with film, it's uh, you know, it's about you got to keep working, man. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So you 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 got to get this stuff because I mean that shit's expensive. We spent like white boy it costs like two hundred fifty thousand to make, 
you know, and like some of these uh, docu-series that, I, that I'm doing now, you know, that are like 180, 225 minutes. I mean, these are like, I mean, we're spending like, you know, $500,000, $750,000 to complete these projects. 